Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Action Radio. This is Greg Penglis coming to you from the historic district of downtown Milton on the banks of the beautiful Blackwater River. And now let's get into Action Radio. Yeah, let's do that. This has been the most incredible flurry of activity the last three hours. Normally, I get up about 4 o'clock, about three hours before the show, and I start uh, prepping. And unfortunately, I was taken up last night, um, most of it, writing an article that I really wanted to write, but uh, I should have been looking more into my guest. Um, so I sort of apologize for that, even though I have I've just taken a crash course in, in Ronald Berludi and his law firm uh, and everything else. And so it's just fascinating what he does. Uh, and the whole, the whole law firm. It's, it's nice to talk to one of the good guys. And so the other funny thing is that we both uh, have, have the University of Massachusetts in common and some other things. We were just talking off the air. So let me give him a, our traditional action radio. Welcome with the, uh, um, the, the ceremonial drum roll. Let me just, I'm just scrolling down my, my audio clips here. Yeah, let's just see where I can find it. Uh, here we go. And let's talk to our guest of the day, Ronald Berluti. So hopefully I can completely butcher his name, but we'll find out uh, in just a second when I bring him on here. Uh, but I do have a, a little bit from the about section of his law firm. And it says, Murray Nolan Berluti, LLC, is already a national leader in meeting our clients' legal needs with respect to constitutional law issues involving deprivations of liberty and civil rights. I'm going to keep going after the music, but uh, that's okay. It says, we handle the cases that others fear, including vaccine mandate challenges, medical exemptions, masking, critical race theory in schools, Second Amendment rights, economic liberty, election law, and other issues that strike at the heart of our free and just equal opportunity society, which we believe must be protected. Um, that seems like a, an adequate agenda. <laughs> Let me bring a, uh, a Ronald on now. That seems like a, a good agenda for the first hour. What do you think? Can we cover all that? <laughs> Good morning, Ron. You're on. Good morning. How are you? Thanks there we go. Okay, me. just yeah, just fine. No, I'm just saying the, the just about section of your of your law firm, and then, I mean, I could talk. To, uh, we could spend an hour on each one of those issues. They're pretty incredible, and uh, the lack of action on them is staggering with what's going on in this country. Well, you know, we uh, because there's a lack of action, we have uh, a lot of people calling us seeking uh, seeking our help because there are very few attorneys willing to take these issues on. And we do it with vim and vigor. Why is that? Do you think? Why, what's uh, you th- don't don't you all, you folks all go to law school with with great idealism? You know, you want to change the world, fix the world, do all the good stuff, or are they all want to suck up the large corporations and uh, be powerful government people and basically screw over everybody's rights? What's going on in law schools? Well, I'll tell you, I, you know, there's a really large societal problem, and I think it starts in our education system where. You know, hmm. civics is no longer taught. And, right. you know, I, I it, it took me, honestly, uh, it took me, you know, some 40-some years of life to really fully get the Declaration of Independence and to get how it's tied into our Bill of Rights. And, you know, they don't teach that in law school. They don't teach it in college. Unless you get into, like, a really, you know, rare course you know, you get bits and pieces here and there, but um, the bottom line is, you know, kids going into law school, what are they taught? They're taught about protesting. They're taught about, you know, social justice. They're taught about all this other stuff that really is antithetical to a lot of the things that have made this country unique and, and a place for people to come to and, and to escape to, like my grandfather did uh, when he escaped communism in 1948. 
Where was he from? Just out of curiosity. So my grandfather, uh, he was from what then was Yugoslavia, now Croatia. He had okay. outsmarted the SS in World War II, avoided capture, and uh, huh. then he uh, then he escaped the communists uh, in a ten horsepower boat across the sea in 1948 with his family, including my mom, on board. So. Wow. So you you got cut off for a second. Did you say I was part of the SS? In other words, the the German Gestapo. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. They went door to door to mm-hmm. get their able-bodied men in his uh, on his island that he was on, and um, he he had a he happened to speak German really well, and he convinced them that he knew the commandant on the island, and um, they let him go. And then he you know another contingent came looking for him, and he had already uh, disappeared. So. It was pretty uh, pretty amazing stuff my grandfather did. This is interesting. Um, I, I should say Nazi Gestapo. I don't like to uh, you know, condemn the, the, the nation for things that, uh, you know, because we have our own problems in this country with things that we've done here. Um, it's fascinating to me how many people that have come to this show have uh, immigrants or are immigrants. I'm, I was born in Canada, um, and my folks took me to Australia before they were able to come here legally. Um, and so I was never under political oppression. I was never under anything like that. But uh, I did come here as an immigrant and someone that saw other parts of the world first. And you take Josie, who does our Latino report. She's from Nicaragua. Um, Dr. Peter Pry, world-renowned nuclear weapons expert. I think his background is Russian. Um, and so there's some fascinating people that, uh, that come to the show here that are you know, from everywhere else. And you'll find, I think, the greatest crusaders are people that, that uh, had to choose to come to the United States or had to choose, as you said, you know, to accept that our founding principles are really the best way to go. Um, and and there's, there's a very common theme, and those that are kind of born into it, you know, they can sort of settle into the beer and football weekend thing and the job and, you know, go through the motions. But unless you're an active participant, you know, we, we need more active participants. And I think that immigrants or people that have suffered political oppression are much more likely uh, to be the folks that, are, that value this country and our values the most. Make sense? Yeah, well, my, my grandfather always said when I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, Ronald, you don't know what freedom is until you've lost it. And uh, it just resonated with me. It always resonated with me. And uh, the reason I think the reason I'm so uh, yeah the, the reason I'm so motivated to do what I do every day is because uh-huh. uh, I I want to preserve that legacy that my grandfather gave me. I, I was born in this country. I was born in, in freedom, and uh, I want to preserve it for my future grandchildren. I, uh, it's it's I owe that to him for what he struggled right. to do and and. Um, we we all owe it, I think, to to the people who came before us. But so many of us have lost uh, touch with that, and uh, we're really in jeopardy now. No, oh, we're a nation of cowards. I mean, I, I talk all the time about uh, conservatives raising, complaining to an art form. Uh, they just don't want to do anything, and that includes local groups here. That you know, uh, I'm the one who created the the Action Radio Citizen Legislature. We are the first radio show in history. Uh, and anywhere in the world that actually writes citizen legislation and submits it to all levels of government. And so what I want to do is work with you, you know, over time and give you a chance to take a look, think about it, uh, help us out with ideas. But, uh, you know, as one lawyer, Jeff Childers, uh, who was on the show before, um, said that, sure. you know, if the, if the lawyers have the tools, you know, you can take them to court. Uh, and one of the things that they don't have is a really good vaccine product liability law because Ronald Reagan uh, and Congress basically signed and passed away uh, the ability of us to sue for liability when, as I say, my local donut shop has more liability than Big Pharma. That's irrational. Yeah. 
So let's talk about that. Then we'll get yeah. back to you, Matt, and other things that we have in common. It's kind of funny, actually. I was going to get to that later. But let's, let's go right to vaccine uh, liability. And uh, why of all the things, the, the biggest, you know, richest lobby in the country was able to buy their way out of liability when, you know, like I say, your, your local car mechanic, I mean, pick a company, has more liability than the entire of big pharma. Well, you know, I, I, I think that there, is, there are some good reasons behind it. And, you know, I don't want to just be a basher. Um, we do – look, we have, uh, we've had a, a great um, expansion in uh, uh, our, our anticipated lifespans, et cetera. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have medications now that do um, take care of a lot of the issues that were, were killing people younger, okay? And, and so I don't want to totally bash pharma. Um, and, and there are vaccines that have been uh, very helpful, et cetera, in the past. And, you know, but I, I believe, uh, and I know, I know other people may have, have other uh, contrary beliefs, but there, I think there is a, there is a, a sense of that in, in a vacuum, there's a greater good to uh, having uh, pharmaceuticals that can help broadly across the spectrum of the United States and, and the world. But the problem is, um, when it becomes, and, and in this case, when it becomes uh, just a huge money-making thing where the safety protocols that we've come to believe in and expect are completely ignored. And when those who raise the issue about these safety protocols and about the, uh, the efficacy of the product um, are, are silenced and, and, uh, in some, you know, and they're losing their jobs and, and then all these different things, and mm-hmm. that's that's to me where the where the, the difference is, and that that's a it's what's what happened with these um, these COVID quote unquote vaccines um, has been the greatest assault on the American people, uh, I think in in history. The, the entire body politic has been assaulted by these things. People have been completely um, fooled by by the by the rhetoric and the falsehoods said about them being safe and effective and how the, the unvaccinated quote-unquote unvaccinated are dangerous and and it's really uh it's it's really in ways that you know it, it's that the left continues to fracture our country and 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 big big government not big government but big corporations including big pharma uh, do it as well it's really it's, it's it's a form of fascism where government and 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 big industry are working together for the same uh same cause against the people yeah, I've been calling Fauci Dr. Fascist for over two years now. Um, of course, yeah. his full title is the, the Genocidal, Psychopathic, uh, Avaricious, Narcissistic, Pathologically Lying Vaccine Drug Pusher. Um, but that's just for special occasions. I bring out his full title. This is interesting. But he's such an and... grandfatherly guy. What's that? But he's such a grandfatherly guy. How could that be? Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, like says, uh, you got to put the mask on, and, and if you do that, then you know, and you take your booster like three times a day, then you'll be you safe because you got to be protected because you never know what's going to happen out there. Yeah, this is Doctor Fauci. Yeah, okay, fine. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I tend to drift into accents every once in a while. Uh, he's the most dangerous man on the planet. Uh, to me, he's the uh, the combination of Doctor Mengele and Joseph Goebbels. You know, and I don't, I don't, I really don't see a difference. Um, but it's interesting that you talk about vaccines. Now, hopefully, I'll, I'm going to try and change your perception a little bit on, on vaccines because I've been talking to uh, my friend Dr. Judy Mikovits a lot, and she goes back with Dr. Fauci to AZT and AIDS, uh, and he had her arrested for for exposing the fact that he was a total fraud, and AZT was nowhere near uh, as good as this drug Bactrin, 
which the New York doctors discovered. Exactly the same thing with hydroxychloroquine. And, uh, and uh, I got to know Dr. Selenko personally. He's been on the show. He was on the show. He, he, uh, he died, I guess, a year or so ago. Um, we wrote a bill together to reform the FDA so that what happened would never happen again. And so I've been deeply into this. But I, I think I will disagree with you on vaccines because uh, my study of them, the polio vaccine was brought about pretty much when polio was gone. Chlorine in the swimming pools, good sewers, clean water is what really uh, eliminated polio, most of the other diseases too. And so my study shows that these things really aren't safe. They really aren't effective, uh, any of them. None of them are really necessary. Most of the diseases that, that people are getting jabs for kids today uh, have been gone for 100 years. And even if they get them, they're treatable. And that's one of the things I talked to Judy about. She was on the show with a bunch of other doctors for 18 weeks. We, we had uh, this amazing series last year. And so I think um, if you look more into it, the law firm does, that you'll find that they're really not uh, necessary needed. And they're causing all kinds of autoimmune diseases, autism. Uh, and there's nothing safe about them at all. Um, that may change your perception of them. I don't know. But, um, well, I, 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 do, I do completely believe in the, in the link between vaccines and autism and, uh, okay. and other things. We have, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, the, I'm, a, I'm a stepfather to a, to a kid who's um, on the spectrum. And uh, hmm. there's, there's obviously a, been a massive prevalence of um, autism and um, much more than it used to be. I remember when Rain Man came out, no one knew what autism was. And now it's like autism, like every third kid is is on the spectrum, it seems. And, and there's there's definitely a correlation between um, something that's in common with all these kids, which is, you know, the vaccines is the is the, is the common element. Uh, so I, I think that the idea that that they're um, that they don't cause autism is is uh, is absolutely a falsehood. And I think it's pretty provable falsehood by basic statistical measures. So if this is causing this kind of a problem, why are they still in the market? Why don't we just put a halt to them until we figure out what's going on? I mean, I would abolish them anyway, uh, and I think my bill on vaccine product liability would do that. But why, why do we even tolerate these things being given to kids, considering the prevalence of autism directly coincides with the rise in, uh, in the, the number of uh, vaccines these kids are getting? Yeah, autism and peanut allergies, that's another one. It, 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 mm-hmm. another, it, it, this boom proliferated. Out of nowhere, when I was a kid, no one had peanut allergies. Um, yeah. Look, I, I, I don't, I'm not prepared to uh, talk about all vaccines. I, I don't have that know-how. Oh, that's fine. No so problem. I'd really be. No, but I, well, I, what's your specialty? Okay, I, 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 let's let's talk what you do want to talk about. Yeah, no, that's okay. You know, I, 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 don't I don't want to be, Yeah. No, that's fine. I talking out of my talking out of my rear, but I do know a lot about these uh, these quote unquote COVID vaccines, and I know that they don't work. I have the, right. the evidence to prove it. Um, from their own studies, and uh, mm-hmm. this is something that we're talking about in numerous legal cases that we have. Where I, I provide the studies for courts, and no court seems to want to read the studies. Um, but the studies themselves show that these things were never effective, even under the best circumstances pre-variant. They they basically had no. Uh, they were all under two percent um, effective. In, in terms of uh, overall risk reduction for the people taking them, uh, Pfizer's study showed it was under one percent, um, and uh, yet they were they were touting this ninety five percent effectiveness, which was a whole different statistical measure, which really, uh, mm-hmm. compared to the, the the correct statistical measure, well, was meaningless. And if people were told, hey, you have a you you have an almost one percent chance of uh, of uh, doing better with COVID if you take this experimental jab, which you're not going to tell you what's in it. And we take it. Nobody. Nobody. 
Well, let's talk about the constitutionally mandates. Um, I just wrote an article. You know, the cure for COVID was freedom. And I've contended all along that, uh, that the mandates are all a Fourth Amendment, you know, a warrantless seizure. And one of my readings of, uh, I, looked up, I want to look up the term unreasonable. Well, if you look at unreasonable back in the 1700s, when they wrote the Bill of Rights, the unreasonable meant without a warrant. In other words, they didn't have the reason. The reason was the warrant, which is different than today. We think of unreasonable as unjustified, but it's a totally different meaning. And so if you think of, of a search and seizure, Fourth Amendment, you know, guarantees that uh, we have the right to be secure in our persons, if I remember the person, papers and effects. Well, everything that COVID did was a seizure of our person. The mask was a seizure of our face. You know, the vaccine was a seizure of our body. There was no due process. And that's the Fifth Amendment. You know, so, so the rights that were violated under COVID were unbelievable. How was that even possible to happen? And how come the lawyers didn't stand up? The politicians didn't stand up? Actually, the politicians were the worst. They actually imposed these mandates and thought they could get away with it. The lockdowns, seizures of business, seizures of income, seizures of property, seizure of churches against the First Amendment. The seizures are, are, are legion, you know, all throughout an entire country, all of which were violations of the Fourth and Fifth uh, Amendments. How is that even possible that could happen? And no one, the lawyers didn't scream and yell, and, and the civil rights people didn't scream and yell, and the, the good politicians didn't scream and yell. They all, uh, they all just marched in lockstep with their masks and shut the hell up. What happened? Well, there, 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 you know, I, I happen to know that there are some really great attorneys out there who are mm-hmm. brave enough to handle these issues and have been raising these issues. Um, but there are very few of us. And, uh, okay. and there's, there's generally a... Uh, it's uh, we basically know who each other are. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's nationally. Uh, there was a big convention down in Atlanta a few oh, months yeah. ago. I know about it. <laughs> yeah, tell me about. So, were you there? No, actually, I, I had a, I couldn't be there because it was a family thing I had. But uh, oh. my friend, all in Ohio, uh, was there, uh-huh. and he's a terrific, terrific attorney who's really been uh, hot on these issues. Who's um, that now? But sorry. Who was the? I missed the name. You, you cut for a second. Yeah, it's Warner Warner Mendenhall. Warner Mendenhall. Warner Mendenhall. Okay. He's a terrific attorney who's really um, working these vaccine uh, things. He's got a he, he writes about it and he um, blogs about it and has a podcast about it. And, but he's really he's really terrific and he's one of the, the guys spearheading these things. Um, mm-hmm. But they, you know, we, I know I know of you know I know of about you know two dozen lawyers in the in the country doing mm-hmm. this. I know there are more. But uh, there are very few of us. And uh, during the, the height of the COVID and, and, and when the vaccines were new and they were you know, shiny and they were going to cure everything, um, <laughs> there, were, there were just a few of us who were, who were yeah. saying, no, you know, you know, stop the train. I want to get off. And, right. um, of course, we were, uh, we were ignored. We've been ignored in the courts. The courts have, don't want to read the papers. The courts want to believe. Look, all the judges were forced to get jabbed for the most part. When, when people when people uh, willingly give up their own rights, um, it's let, much easier for them to say other people should give up their rights too, and it's much harder for them to to look at it from the perspective of you know the ten thousand feet overview and say, geez, maybe maybe the people who didn't get jabbed were actually right, and maybe I was wrong. It's very hard. Uh, we're all human beings, and we all like to believe that we're right, and. Um, to try to get the judges to to see and comprehend that there were real issues with these jabs, um, it, it's very difficult, and that includes the Supreme Court. 
Well, I don't think much of the Supreme Court uh, ever since Marbury versus Madison, which we should probably talk about on a, on a future. In fact, I'm trying to get Alan Dershowitz on. I want to challenge him on this because that's the worst decision of, of the entire Supreme Court. Uh, judicial review is completely unconstitutional, and there's just a, a ton of things we can talk about. I want to save that for another time because you just said something fascinating. The judges got the jabs. How can they even sure. do that? Did they, did they not go to law school? Did they, did they not study the Fourth Amendment? Did they not understand that informed consent is what everything, you know, is, is the whole basis of any medical practice? That the, you know, well, I'll get into the fact that our rights are absolute in a minute. Didn't they understand? Why would they even do that? Why wouldn't the judges well, of all people say, wait a minute, look, this I, is I, unconstitutional? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that, that we're all free to make our own decisions. And, and right. judges... Everybody else made their own decisions. However, I, the, the reality is, is that the information being provided to the people, and that includes judges and politicians mm-hmm. and everyone else, was, was false. It was not, it was not true. And mm-hmm. uh, there was not a lot of, uh, you know, people were scared with the pandemic, and, and they were scared into believing that, that these things were going to be a cure-all, and they were scared into believing that if they didn't get these jabs, they were going to kill granny. And, and you know, and, and so people just fell in line, and they didn't question very few people question, and that's you know this is what we're seeing. You know, government is so powerful, and 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 the internet is so powerful because they bombard you with messaging, and it's it's the messaging they want you to believe. And for the most part, we see that most people, smart people, not smart people, and everyone in between, tends to believe that they want to believe it's true. They want to believe that the information being provided is. It's good information. It's not agenda-driven. And it's just not, you know, and history tells us that's just not true, that, that that's right. false, that, that when we're bombarded with these messages, we need to stop, slow down, and start asking questions before we go forward. Because if we don't do that, we put ourselves at great risk, and we put our, our liberties at great risk. Yeah. Yeah. One of the advantages of, and there are very few, by the way, but the, one of the advantages of growing up with a completely dysfunctional family is that you learn not to trust anybody. <laughs> you don't take anything at face value. Um, and so I was always skeptical. Um, in fact, I'm under huge suppression currently. In fact, I, I proposed a lawsuit a couple of years ago. I'll send it to you uh, and you can tell me what, if they think there's merit to it. I'm supposed to be on uh, Robert Francis Kennedy's lawsuit against big tech. And I think uh, America First Legal, I'm supposed to be on theirs, but they don't talk to me because they're big, you know. But um, that is something that I want to do. And I've got a bunch of ideas uh, to go along with that. Again, we may want to talk about that uh, in, in a future show as well. But if we had our bill, well, let me, let me tell you what we did here at Action Radio. Um, because I am so skeptical of this, because as soon as I heard about uh, uh, Dr. Fascist and uh, Trump's China ban, uh, first of all, I had COVID before we even knew what it was. Early January 2020. Oh, yeah. Uh, it went through here. I'm in Milton, Florida, right near Pensacola. It went through here last week of December, first week of January. Everybody got it. Everybody had a cough that nobody could explain. We were all sick. And I had a part-time job. I told the boss, I said, look, you got to start giving sick days, dude. We're all just reinfecting each other. We're getting sick, coming back and reinfecting. I said, I don't know what's going on, but something's going on because we knew something was wrong. Well, that turned out to be COVID. Uh, it was the cough that wouldn't go away. And I've got the shows to prove, you know, I'm asking for guest hosts and I'm, I'm trying to, uh, uh, you know, do anything. But I sounded terrible. And, and then it was gone. I thought, oh, and when I learned the symptoms of COVID, it's like, oh, that was COVID. Okay, that's done. I'm immune. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I never wore a mask, you know, except, like I say, on my job part-time on my chin, you know, just to sort of fake it. But the point was that I would never do that. Uh, when uh, Ron DeSantis, who just declared for president because he's an idiot, we'll talk about that at a later time too, um, people forget that he was as draconian as Witch Widmer 
you know, Gretchen Widmer in, uh, in Michigan, he closed the beaches and the schools and the parks. And he said safer at home and all this stuff. And of course I rebelled, you know, driving my car with my windows open, yelling and screaming out the window, you know, bad country music songs. because <laughs> I can't really say that well, um, but we resisted. And in the show, the way we did the show, I'll just give you a quick timeline. February 25th, um, Dr. Pry uh, asked Bill Gertz to come on the show. So we had Bill Gertz, national security uh, reporter for the, uh, the Washington Times. We knew about Wuhan February 25th of 2020. So January 2020, I got COVID. Later January, uh, Trump bans travel from China. Uh, later in February, we had, the, um, we had Bill Gertz. February 25th, February 27th, I wrote a bill. Uh, saying that Congress could only spend half their money on vaccines. The other half had to be spent on early treatments. Because I knew about early treatments. This is in February, right? <laughs> you know, March 2nd, we declared the government response pretty much a hoax, that uh, we had chloroquine, because that's the, the, the DDR-Road study in Marseille, France. And we were broadcasting this from the beginning. Well, guess what happened to my audience? <laughs> as soon as I started broadcasting that the government policy is a joke, there is no pandemic, we've got the cures. My audience took a nosedive. And it's still being suppressed to this day. That right. should be a lawsuit, I would think. Uh, what do you, you think? And their immunities for for the press, their immunities for tech, you know, all these people have bought their immunities. And uh, mm-hmm. the only thing that doesn't give you immunity is the vaccine that they're pushing. But, that's, <laughs> you know, it, it's... Uh, <laughs> well, well, let's... Uh, well, let me talk about two bills, and I'm curious your response. Now, our vaccine bill, uh, when you get a chance to take a look at it, is very simple. It changes, it changes a few things, but it basically it takes two places in law where it says that vaccine manufacturers shall not be civilly liable. And I just changed that to vaccine manufacturers shall be fully liable. So we're talking a couple of words. That's the whole bill, essentially, with some preemption and a couple of other things. But essentially, it just changes shall not uh, be to shall be fully. That's not hard to yeah, understand. I, 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 it's, it's not hard to understand. I, I, I would, and again, for the reasons I expressed, I, I think that there is some reasonable merit to wanting to allow pharmaceutical companies to spend their R&D money to try to actually come up with uh, cures, that you know, things that they think may, may be curable. And, and we, we mm-hmm. can all disagree on the merits. And so there, there should be some shield. Um, and I don't, I don't but why them? So, why for well, them and why not GM, you know, or why not the Ford Pinto? So you know, what's the difference? Because if it's so easy um, oh. to sue them, what's going to happen is, is we're going to be like every other third world country, which has no medicines. Look, the world has relied upon the American pharmaceutical industry to provide mm-hmm. them the medicine that they need to, for, for a lot of the things that have uh, ailed the world. And, and, and that's, Part of it is, you know, we have a, we have a free society, and we have great scientists, and we have, you know, I, I know people in the industry who are scientists, and you know, they're not trying to find a way to to snooker people; they're trying to find a way to cure people. And I, I do understand mm-hmm. that there's a value to that. That said, there has to be some mechanism where, if the pharmaceutical industry is pushing um, statistical information which is misleading, such mm-hmm. as the five percent effectiveness rate. And if they're pushing, you know, there has to be a full disclosure that's actually meaningful. In 2017, there was guidance put out by the FDA. Um, you know, there, there, I was talking to you before. There's, there, are two, there are two ways of measuring the success of these things. There's the absolute risk reduction and there's the relative risk reduction. And absolute risk reduction compares the number of people putatively benefited by, uh, by the vaccine in, the, in their study 
against the entire population of the study who took the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And like for, for, for Pfizer, it was like only point, I think it was 0.73% um, were actually, there was an absolute risk reduction. Whereas the relative risk reduction was 95%, a much smaller subset, like a few hundred people were compared against each other. And mm-hmm. in, in 2017, in, um, in proposed guidance, the FDA said, if, if companies are going to, uh, to advertise their, uh, the effectiveness of their product, they have to use absolute risk reduction and not relative risk reduction. And if they're going to use relative risk reduction, they must also compare it to the absolute risk reduction for truth in advertising purposes. When, when you're, when, with these vaccines, there was no truth in advertising, and there should be liability for that. There absolutely mm-hmm. should. Just people have been snookered, and people have been harmed by it. And for me, the bigger thing is not even so much the pharma companies, because there is some merit. Like I said, I think there is some merit, and I think, I think a lot of people would agree that they have some kind of companies to operate and, and to develop. But when you have private companies mandating that their employees take emergency use authority vaccines, and under the emergency use authority statute, 21 U.S.C. Section 360 BBB, mm-hmm. there's, an I know well. yeah, yeah. there's an absolute right to say no. There's mm-hmm. an absolute right to say uh, with informed consent, no, I don't want it. And there's a related regulation that says if you say no, you cannot be punished. How is it that private companies and how is it that government entities, too, um, they're not vaccine manufacturers. They have no reason to be immune. They, they're they forcing their employees to either get the jab or get unemployed. That, to me, is the greater crime. That's, there should be no immunity. There should be absolutely no way that I, as an employee of XYZ company, must get an experimental jab or lose my job. They have no right to do that, and I, I do believe that there's a gap in legislation that needs to be cured, that needs to be fixed, so that all of these uh, companies that have caused people to be fired and, if, and have had employees who've died and gotten sick because they got the jabs uh, out of compulsion, these companies should be held liable. It should never happen again. Well, you can do that right now, can't you, with that same Section 360 BBB, which prohibits you know, the forcing of a vaccine without informed consent. The fact that these companies did fire these people uh, and I have friends that were, were kicked out of the military. Uh, I have uh, friends that lost you know, jobs in corporations, and I have people that, that quit simply because they didn't want to take it. All these people should be able to sue. It, it's one thing to have liability for a vaccine, but it's another thing to violate federal law. And they can't do that. So can you not take the, the companies um, and, the, and the government to, uh, to court for those things using that particular section of the law? Yeah, well, I, I, I am. I have a bunch of those lawsuits. The, here's the problem with it uh-huh. is that the statute is written uh, says that um, it indicates that only the United States can bring suit, and of course, if to, to enforce the law, and and if, if well, that that's sucks. the case, <laughs> yeah, and then if that's the case, you need you need to have a a an administration that will enforce the law, which we don't have. We have an administration that only enforces the laws it wants to enforce and then makes up laws as it goes along when uh, they, there's no law in place uh, for them to enforce the things that they want. We have yep. – it's, it's a rogue administration. Um, so, so the reality is that uh, there, you know, there are other causes of action we can raise. I've raised I've, – I've sued – I have a number of lawsuits against uh, 
uh, hospitals and and, and others um, colleges uh, for for these mandates that they have. But they're they're hard cases for the reasons we discussed. You know, judges judges come in with the belief that these things are safe and effective. That that the clients are just yahoos. They're just you know malcontents who don't want to uh, to get the jab. And, and this is the mindset I think that that we we have we face almost every day going into court. And I, I you know my my belief is uh, with respect to going to court. And sort of our philosophy is we, we try to take cases federally for the most part. Uh, I do hmm. believe uh, that our Supreme Court is now the best Supreme Court I've had in my lifetime. And I do believe that there's a shot that we have with this Supreme Court to actually make some law on some of these issues that will have a national impact. Because um, I think that if, if unless, you know, I, I think that the only real ways right now to to change and, and to sort of redirect our nation back to its, its principles is through um, is through the courts or through elections. And look, we know elections are more and more suspect. So you could do all the legislation you want, but you have to get you have to get the right number of people to to be elected to then pass it and, and to go through the rules, you know, and, and to get things passed. It's very difficult. Um, oh, I know. Courts, Believe me, I know that. Yeah, yeah. But let's talk about the court for a second, uh, and then we can talk about legislation. The court itself, um, you know, the, the, there's so many misconceptions. For one thing, Article Three doesn't say Supreme Court justices; it says judges. So anybody says Supreme Court justice, I know they haven't read Article Three. Uh, when anybody mentions the, the term lifetime appointment, this includes, you know, the three Stooges uh, that were uh, Trump appointees: um, Barrett, uh, Gorsuch, and uh, Fratbar Kavanaugh. All of them talked about lifetime appointments. And I said, you can't. You're wrong. It's good behavior. Good behavior to me is following the Constitution. For example, anybody that voted uh, in favor of Roe v. Wade, which is an unconstitutional, illegal decision, should have been removed by the court, uh, from the court by Congress. And so the Supreme Court, it should not be dependent on personality. We should not be trying to get conservatives on the court so that things will go properly you know, following the Constitution. Anybody who's on the court should be following the Constitution. So I would, I would remove everybody from the court uh, except uh, Clarence Thomas and uh, Sam Alito. Those are the only two people that seem even remotely close to following the Constitution. And even they still dabble in judicial review. But, to, you know, again, that's, a, that's another conversation. But why are we, why are we, you know, you say it's the best Supreme Court, but it's still, it's still not a good Supreme Court because they don't follow the Constitution. They don't stay within their cases. They bring about policies and regulations. They use judicial review. The Supreme Court, as far as I'm concerned, is a rogue illegal agency of the government. They assume powers that they don't have. They create powers. They make up their own powers. The one thing the Constitution says more than anything else is that no government entity can make up its own power. And yet that's exactly what Marbury versus Madison did. And they've been doing it ever since. So to me, it's a, you know, there are some, it's a better Supreme Court, but it's by no means a good one. I don't think it's close to a good one, considering what they do. What do well, you think? I, I, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll respectfully disagree with you on a number of the things you said. I, I, I believe Mar- okay. Marbury versus correct. I mean, if, if Marbury Madison is not correct, then there's no need for have a, to have a Supreme Court. The, uh, mm, yeah. Not true. I, don't, I disagree with you there, but I'll, well, let me only finish. I'm sorry. The tripartite government was, was created to, to prevent, to prevent uh, anyone, you know, any one uh, branch of government from having uh, too much power. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, courts are required to, to be there as a check. Unfortunately, I think the biggest problem is, isn't so much Marbury versus Madison, but that the um, the founders didn't really think through the judiciary that well, 
um, they were more worried about, I think, um, how to how to get uh, the, the people to uh, to agree to the Constitution to ratify it, and they looked more more toward the legislature as the biggest issue and how that would be created to preserve liberty. Uh, but there's no check on the Supreme Court other than the impeachment process, and I think that's the that's the pro- that's the problem uh, with mm-hmm. with respect to courts more than anything else. Um, there there should be there should be a way for um, I do believe that I do believe in judicial review, and I, but I do believe also that there should be a check by Congress on Supreme Court decisions that can be nullified by Congress. Um, well, they can. They be, can pass a new law. They can outlaw a decision in, in the same way that you know any two branches of government can check the others. So Congress and the president can check the Supreme Court. Congress passes a law, you know, basically overturning or outlawing that decision, saying it's not constitutional. They're wrong. In the same way that the court and the president can overrule Congress, the, uh, and the uh, the court and the Congress can overrule the president. I mean, that's I, how it I, works. I would, I would, I would make it simpler. I wouldn't say that you have to have a law. I would say that Congress, by a vote of Congress, without the president's interference, the people's uh-huh. body can overrule right. a Supreme Court decision, make it non-presidential. I think that, that would sense. be the That's that better. would be the way to do. It. Um, okay. Yeah. It's, 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 well, why don't they do that? Same problems, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's just from the Supreme Court, let's let's see if we can find a limit of judicial review. In other words, as I see the Constitution, Article Three gives the Supreme Court jurisdiction over cases so they can rule within the case. They can use the Constitution, but where I disagree is that they cannot, quote, interpret the Constitution. They have to use it as written, and using it as written, they can suspend laws, put injunctions on laws, you know, overturn uh, actions of, of the president. They can overturn executive orders and say, no, this doesn't follow the Constitution. Here's why. But not making up things like uh, some, you know, imagined right of privacy where one person can govern the lives of three people, as they did with Roe v. Wade and abortion, or any of the things that they have done that go beyond the actual case itself into the realm of policy, regulation, and law. As long as they stay within the case, and like when the, the masks were overturned, um, that was a good action. That used the Constitution, and I believe the, the Fourth Amendment, saying, no, you can't have a mask mandate. But they didn't prescribe, the judge didn't prescribe a remedy. They didn't go beyond uh, the overturning of the mass mandate into some other things saying, okay, now you have to do this. So my limit on, on the review would be use the Constitution, use it in the case, uh, apply it to the parties, and that's it. Don't go into the realm of policy, law, regulation, or anything beyond the actual case itself. If they did that, I'd be fine with it, but they don't. Well, that's the problem. I, 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 think that, I think that at some level, I, I, at some level what you're saying is that you are a, you're a person who is an originalist, and that's, you know, that's what I would be. Um, no, I just read the Constitution. <laughs> I mean, I use it today. I don't, I, don't, I don't look for the original meaning way back when, unless there are words to define, like well-regulated. doesn't mean government-regulated in the Second Amendment. But I just, well, I just it, apply it. Just... But then what you're doing is you're applying your, your interpretation of the meaning. You're doing exactly what you say that you don't believe in. How? Right? There, has to be, there has to be a meaning. There has to be a meaning at the time of the Constitution, and that's, the, that's what originalism is. When, when, when amendments are passed to the Constitution, when the first, remember the First Amendment did not exist when the Constitution was ratified. What did mm-hmm. it mean when it was ratified? Now, of course, every single circumstance that we face today was not intended to be. Uh, it, it couldn't have been. It couldn't have been foreseen, right? Mm-hmm. But the Constitution, the, the amendment had a certain meaning, and you have to apply that meaning to whatever the situation is today and see does it fit within the meaning and and there is a there is some level of interpretation that you have to do that a judge has to do um and and but the the reality is though that um 
I, I believe the reason I believe that this court is the best Supreme Court we've had is mm-hmm. because um, there are the, the, there is a majority there is a majority on the court of people who at least uh, have demonstrated some affinity to originalism and and to the original meaning of the Constitution mm-hmm. and um, I I don't I don't think that we can expect on any given day that you're going to get a nine zero decision or even a a five, four, or six, three decision. I, I don't. I don't think it's healthy to have mm-hmm. the court always, uh, split into camps. Uh, it, it's it's healthy to have nine justices who are independent thinkers, but I believe that that of those nine justices, they should they should all be originalists because you can come to different interpretations even under originalism. Um, and that, and well, see, I disagree with the concept of interpreting because why would you know? Let's take the Second Amendment, which is something that you have a, a big area in. There's nothing to interpret. The right of the people to keep and bear arms can't be touched. There's no interpretation. Well, that's there. not what it says, though, is it? Well, there's more to it. Let's go into the more to it. Okay. So the only, I wouldn't interpret, I would translate, you know, or in other words, the, the meaning of the word well regulated militia. You know, people think that that means the National Guard or that means the government militia, but. The only thing I would do that's original is look up the meaning of the time so we understand what we're talking about, but still use today's language and, and use it as written. So I'm not an originalist. I'm, I, I want the Constitution used as written. So a well-regulated militia is, is, a, is a non-governmental citizen military group that is equipped as well as regulars, in other words, infantry soldiers. That's what it means. Well, I think that's, that's your interpretation of what it means. No, that, that's, right? that's, that's, I looked up the old definition. That's, that's, the, that's what it meant. That's what a well-regulated militia is. That's not interpreting. That's just simply looking at the meaning of time. So, yes, did I get the original meaning at that time? Yes, but we still apply it today. A militia today is the same as it was then, a non-government group of, of citizens armed as well as what would be considered Army regulars, now what we consider Army infantry, with arms that you can hold in your arms. That's what it means. Where am I wrong? Tell well, me. I, I, I understand. No, I, 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 I agree. Okay. Generally, with what you're saying. But what I'm what I'm suggesting is all you're doing to your own conclusions using your understanding of originalism and and see every every person is not going to if if Greg Panglis is the only one who can determine what that means based upon the history at the time then it's only one person's rule right the Supreme Court is in place to have a body of hopefully scholarly people who can look at the original meaning and say, this is happening today under the original meaning of the constitution. This is or is not protected. And here's why, because at the time of the constitution, um, what the well-regulated militia met was as follows. And you're not going to get every, every justice always to agree, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's not what you want. You want to have a, a deliberative body um, because otherwise you cool. just have, is a tyrant, right? I mean, you have you have yeah. a, you have a judicial. They just say this is it, period, and we're all, we're always in lockstep. I think nothing's worse than seeing a court that always that's always unanimous. We have that in the New Jersey Supreme Court a lot. It's it's always unanimous. You never see dissent. You never see passionate dissent, or very rarely. And I think that's really that's really for the. It, it's not for the better. It's for the worse mm-hmm. because you you want to have thoughtful people looking at issues and preserving. Uh, those issues for the future generations. We saw it. We saw it historically. We saw it. Uh, we look at um, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, right? And, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, these kinds of cases where the, where the dissents are the ones that 
people look at in, in the future and say, wait a minute, there was another way of looking at this. And, and the way of, you know, we think that the way that the dissent looked at it was the correct way. You need to have that robust debate. And uh, Oh, I'm all in favor of debate. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that. But where I disagree with you is that I'm, I don't believe that I am interpreting because that to me that's changing. When you interpret, you're like turning English into French. That's interpreting. Um, well, you know, what I do is just look at the meaning uh, and just read it. I'm a reader, not, a, not an interpreter. So that's why I agree. But let's, let's take the rest of the Second Amendment. Uh, so if we can uh, – you know, to, okay, so let's talk about a, a militia. So but it, what it really says is that a militia is necessary for the security of a free state. That almost implies it's a requirement. In other words, we're not free unless we have militias. Therefore, in order for a militia to form a non-citizen, non-government group of armed citizens, they have to have the ability to keep and bear arms. So that's what it says to me. And I'm not translating. I'm not interpreting. I'm just reading it. I agree. And, right. and look, and I, I mentioned how uh, it took me a long time really to kind of understand the, the interplay between the Declaration of Independence and, and, the, and the Constitution. Well, tell me about that. Tell me about that. And let's, let's look at that. You know, what were the founders concerned about? What, what, started, what was the shot heard around the world about? It was about the British trying to seize arms yeah, and munitions. <laughs> Illegal right. gun control. Yeah. Exactly what it was. And, and so the Second Amendment is there because – the well-regulated militia were the people hiding behind the walls and the rocks and the, the Minutemen mm-hmm. who stopped that from happening. That's what the well-regulated militia was. And right. that's what, what made them regulated. To... What made them well-regulated? Well, the, 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 there was, there was <laughs> discipline uh, within, within at some level, right? Um, there was uh, well, you know, Colonel Parker. You know, Colonel yeah. Parker was the head Parker, of the militia. Yeah. Right. So we, we know that, but, uh, and they did drill, you know, and, and so I mean, no, but they, they had arms, you know, they had musket and ball and, and shot and that kind of that's what they were regulated the same as the British regulars were regulated. They had the same equipment as the British regulars. That's what made them well regulated. Because they well, were they were but, regulated but, as well as the British infantry. Really? Well, I, you know, I think, <laughs> I think there I think there can be I think there could be an argument made that citizens should all be in the militia. Right? We should all have in the militia. militia. We are in the militia. militia. Well, let me get to the chat. Uh, we're we're going to run out of time here. This is uh, I really. I, I, I hope you don't mind me disagreeing because I'm really enjoying this conversation. No, um, let's talk. Let's, well, let's talk about rights. Um, are rights absolute? Uh, are rights absolute? Mm-hmm. Rights are absolutely absolute. But the question is, what is the meaning of the you know what you have you have here's and this is this is where the judges come into play and lawyers come into play mm-hmm. you can't say every right is absolute because and the reason being that rights will conflict with one another and if rights conflict with one another then there has to be some kind of way to we have the immovable object and and the uh irresistible force clashing mm-hmm. um there's no way they can both be absolute, right? So no, I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. And I'll, and I'll, I think I can prove my case to you. Um, but uh, keep going. This is interesting. I'll, I'll tell you what well, I mean. Go ahead. I mean All right. Uh, you know, so uh, name two rights that are in conflict. Name two. I, I, I could I could pull up uh, a legal case if I had to. But no, I don't want a legal up. case. I'm just I'm just saying. Let's just stick, stick with the Bill of Rights. Tell me two rights that are in conflict in the Bill of Rights. 
but it's, it's, not, about about the, it's, it's not about the conflict in the Bill of Rights. It's about the conflict in the lives of people who are affected by the Constitution, right? If um, and this is what this is why we have lawyers, and this is why this is why our society is is so heavy in law because we do have conflicts all the time, and and there has to be some method by which to say, yes, there is a um, there is a, a way to to reach some kind of principled solution to this conflict. And that may mean that there has to be some form of yielding of one right or the other based upon some legal principle. Um, other, otherwise, it's unworkable. And, uh, and so I'll, I'll look, for instance, um, I'll just take a, a for instance. Uh, okay. When, when, when the government, you know, when government, uh, when there are, uh, there are limits to free speech, right, um, there, ha- there has to be some limit at some point some time for there to be a functioning society you can't just everyone just can't go around screaming at the same time and everything stops and there are certain instances where um where there's a a right to stop people from exercising unfettered free speech let's say you can't have a crowd of people standing up in the middle of all the highways and protesting um, it, 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 it stops because it interferes with everyone else's rights, correct? So there has to be some way for government to intervene in that, what you would say is an unfettered right, and the court has to develop a test. And what the court has developed really is a test that's you know, called strict scrutiny, and they say it has to be the least restrictive means of, uh, of violating the speech, and it has to be um, you know, it, it, there's a there's a legal test that's been created. Maybe it's not perfect, mm-hmm. but it's a it's there has to be a way to um, at least regulate the method by which your free speech is given when it's interfering with other people's rights. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's where I disagree. All rights are absolute, and the reason I say that is because if it's if it's regulated by government, restricted whether it's scrutiny, reasonable restrictions, or any of these other things that I think are absolutely illegal and unconstitutional, uh, it becomes a government privilege. And the whole point of a right is it is absolute, uh, and I would say for the Bill of Rights, absolute as written. For example, the Second Amendment is absolute. The right of, is to keep and bear. Now, what people have forget to no, forgotten to notice is that the Second Amendment doesn't have the word use in it. So the use of firearms is not a right because there are legal and illegal uses of firearms. So you have an absolute right to keep and bear, and it makes sense to have an absolute right to keep and bear because you may need to use your firearm for self-defense, which is a legal use. And the only way you can use it instantly is to have a right to keep and bear that the government can't touch. So what I do is I separate the right from the actual actions of people. So in other words, the right of free speech is absolute. You know, and they say, well, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Well, I'm saying, well, yes, you can yell fire in a crowded theater. What if there's a fire? Okay, what if you're the first one to see a fire? Wouldn't you yell? Okay, so that example doesn't work. But if you look at the use, so in other words, we protect the right. In other words, the prior appropriation by government or the prior, excuse me, the prior restraint by government. So we cannot, so the whole purpose of right is to prevent the government from prior restraint, in other words, gun control um, or limiting free speech. You cannot touch the right. The right itself to speak is what we're protecting here. Now, the use of speech is something entirely different. 
Now we're talking about a, a whole different area. And we have laws of libel and slander and other things that protect speech that you can be sued for. We also have uh, protests on a freeway that are disrupting traffic and that are endangering people, blocking ambulances, the whole bit. That action is illegal, but we can protect you can protect absolutely the right of free speech. In other words, the right being the wall between the government and the people and still stop actions of people that would be otherwise illegal. That's what I'm saying. Do you believe, do you believe, in, the absolute, do you believe in the absolute right to constitutional carry? Yes. Open carry, okay, so concealed carry, so, so here, no, so no so permit. Here, here's, uh-huh. here's, here's, where, here's where I see it. I'm going to give you an example of a conflict. Sure. Hypothetical, weird, whatever. <laughs> Constitutional right to carry. I walk into a crowded theater, uh-huh. and I yell, "I'm going to shoot this place up," and it creates a panic because not everyone is constitutional. Not everyone's carrying. Now maybe right. someone mows me down, but now you've created a panic, and you may create a stampede, and you may create a dangerous That's situation. That's illegal. So the constitutional well, no, but, carry no, but, is legal, no, but, but the minute on. you said something, you engage. Okay, I'm sorry. All right, go ahead. <laughs> You're punishing the speech. Punishing you, you would punish the speech of saying that. I could say anything I want. I have unfettered right to say anything I want. Mm-hmm. I'm going to shoot this place up, and I have mm-hmm. a right to carry. Mm-hmm. If there's right there is a conflict, and you have to make a determination. There has to be some kind of yielding to one right or to the other. And that's what lawyers face every day. And, and I think that what the problem we're having, and I think let's go, kind of go back to the original question that you had, is why aren't attorneys taking action? And mm-hmm. I think the reason attorneys aren't taking action is because they're not focused on these kinds of issues. They're focused mm-hmm. on broad social issues and all this other nonsense and they've been right. led to believe that that government is a cure-all and be-all, and that government is is for the for the good. And we and you know and we who know history are well aware that government is not good; it is a necessity, and that our founders decided the the big fight in in uh, between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists in creating the Constitution wasn't between how big and powerful we can have the government be to protect us. question was, how limited can we make it be so that we can actually preserve liberty without having tyranny? And there has to be some, even the Declaration of Independence, there is a, there's a purpose for government. Government's purpose is to keep us free. Mm-hmm. And when government no longer is serving that purpose, you know, there's, a, there's a right and a duty of the people to replace the government. And we've created an electoral system to to be that way to replace government, and um, and and that's why the Civil War was justified in my view. There's an electoral system that was ignored, and 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 government to be preserved had to be. You, you couldn't just leave because you're dissatisfied with the result, right? Uh-huh. Um, and and so what we have here is uh, we we have most people not really understanding, not able to have this debate that we just had, which is a principled debate that you're having and I'm having. Mm-hmm. And, and we should all have these discussions and debates and, and, and not, uh, not hate each other for it, but realize that the, the, the real point is that powerful of a government mm-hmm. destroys our freedom. And when our freedom, freedom is destroyed, um, we lose so much more than just you know, that little right that day 
it, it's it's something that like lasts for generations and often never can come back and never be taken, never be recovered. And uh, we have to jealously guard our freedoms and be very careful about these compromises that we have to make and be very careful to have justices on the court who are going to be principled in looking at these cases and reaching determinations as to how these compromises have to be made so that they do not have um, overreaching impact and they do not cause uh, us to lose our rights in a, in a material way uh, for all time. Yeah, and uh, that that actually makes a lot of sense. And where we disagree is that I believe that uh, anytime you touch the right, the government, uh, whether it's reasonable restrictions or the strict scrutiny of the other things, you basically erode the principle of, of a right being an absolute that is a firewall between the government and the people so that they do not prior restrain us from doing things you want to do. But once people take action, once, you know, it's, and I would draw the line with our constitutional carry person walking to the theater, as long as they were, you know, behaving normally and weren't breaking any, any other law, uh, they have the absolute right to walk into a crowded theater with a firearm. I don't have a problem with that. Stadium, any place, church, you know, uh, different things like that. However, the minute you start screaming, you are liable for what you say. The minute you start acting, you are liable for what you do. And so that's the difference. In other words, we, we can't, we, we have to protect the rights for the honest law-abiding citizen. We don't take away the rights of the law-abiding because of what a criminal might do. And that's another conversation for, for another day, too. But we've got about three minutes left. So, so let me ask you about our whole idea of citizen legislation, uh, the idea that uh, those of us out here are writing bills, putting them on our website, writeyourlaws.com. Um, is something that um, you'd be interested in looking at, helping with, have some advice for us, or just as another way uh, another thing between, you know, bullets and ballots is, is we, uh, you know, as people are getting pretty serious about hating this government and I don't want that to happen. So I see action radio as, as like a third alternative say, wait a minute, let's change the laws themselves instead of relying on the politicians and the elections, which we know are, are fraudulent and stolen. But I think there's a much more direct way of doing things. And we get enough people, we get a few million people sending in vaccine product liability to Congress. I don't care how big pharma is. We get enough of us to send that, that uh, link into uh, media and to Congress, I think those bills will pass. That's well, yeah, it's, it's what it is. It's a form of lobbying, right? It, it, you know, it's mm-hmm. when, when you get, when you get, uh, the, look, lo- lobbying is, is largely about money because politicians need money to mm-hmm. survive in their positions. There's no term limits. So it's all about the money. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, um, but if, if enough people are saying, look, this is the bill we want, and if you don't pass it, you're not going to get elected. Well, isn't that just another form of money in, in a sense? Well, it's no, it's, but, but our currency is money, votes. Money it's not a currency of money. It's a currency of votes, and, and that's the difference, right. I think. Right. It's, it's so, a currency. Yeah. Right. And, Agreed. Uh, they use money, they use money to, to buy votes, essentially, to, to con people mm-hmm. into believing that vaccines are safe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. And um, if the people if the people fight back and say no we we don't agree with this and you have millions of people saying it well that's a powerful that's a powerful tool to get uh, politicians to stand up and take note and hopefully you know work on these laws to to get them in a stage where they can get passed so I think what you're doing is a great service. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So anything you can do to help. I'll take one last question real quick. The national trial lawyers, I don't know if you're a member of those, but I don't understand why they aren't uh, fully supporting with millions of dollars of lobbying themselves our vaccine product liability bill and our bill that uh, basically uh, makes big tech liable 
And so in other words, they get the, the Section 230 protection if they don't touch anything anybody posts or arrange the search engines with algorithms or, or mess with anybody's account. But if they do any of those things, they lose their immunity and they can be sued. Why have the national trial lawyers picked up on that? There's billions of dollars in it for them. What are they thinking? Because, because, because it's like everything else. They, they have political angles for everything. And, and, and if, huh. if, you believe that, if you believe that by doing that, uh, the politics that you believe in will be hurt, then maybe you're not going to be so inclined to support the thing that will hurt your politics. And I think that's a really huge problem that we have, that, um, that, that we're, we're governed by our politics, not so much as the, as the, the propriety of a neutral policy. Uh, or you're, you're trying to make a neutral policy, and, and I think that's it's a huge problem. Yeah, that makes sense. I never thought of that. That's, that's great. Um, two questions. One, we need your contact information so people can get a hold of you. And two, um, did you have Dean Elfange for constitutional law at UMass? I'm just curious. Did, did I have what? Sorry? Dean, uh, Professor Dean Elfange. He was my constitutional law professor at University of Massachusetts. That's a big reason why I'm doing oh, what I'm doing I, now. You know, I, I graduated. I was a hotel restaurant administration major, so I did oh. very few. I, I did a few. Uh, I did a few uh, poli sci courses that I really liked uh-huh. and uh, right. history. But I that was not really that was not my major. I didn't even minor. Uh, and I decided my senior year that I wanted to go to to, uh, to law school. I didn't even know what law school was. I, I saw friends of mine taking the LSAT. I'm like, what's the LSAT? Mm-hmm. So that's how you get into law. What's law school? Well, law school is a good order. <laughs> See, that's so these, these class, but I could do yeah. it, and, and that's what that's what happened. Um, yeah. So um, huh. uh, your first question was, uh, what was your first question? Contact information. We better get that in oh, before you have to go. Right. The, the all-important contact information. So mm-hmm. um, I, uh, I'm i not a huge uh, Twitter guy or anything like that. Find our website, www.murray-nolanbaruti.com. I'll spell it M as in Mary, U-R-R-A-Y hyphen. N is Nancy, O-L-A-N is Nancy, B-E-R-U-T-T-I, MurrayNolanBaruti.com. And that's uh, my partner and I. Um, we are fighting the good fight. And um, we do do some cases nationally, uh, not a lot, uh, but I do have stuff brewing in Colorado. I have a case in Ohio, but we're primarily uh, New Jersey, New York, and admitted in Kentucky. And uh, those are where we practice, and a little bit of D.C. too. Interesting. We have a friend up there, too, uh, of the show. Jay Anthony Sanchez is an attorney also. Oh, I think he might have moved to Texas. But he was up uh, in the New England area for a long time. I don't know if you guys know each other. Um, but uh, we have many lawyers who are friends of the show because that's what we do here. Lawyers, doctors, you know, all the stuff that we do. Um, any last comments? Any, anything we should be looking at? Um, any, any cases that you, you think should be uh, noted? Any, any uh, last things? I think because I, I, I know you have to go. Well, if you don't have to go, you can stay. I'll always do more. But uh, I think we pretty well, well covered uh, a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I'll just say I have one case right now that I'm really hopeful uh, may have some legs in terms of vaccines, and it's my personal case. I I sued the chief judge of the New Jersey uh, federal courts uh, because I was not permitted into the courthouse, uh, being uh, that he did not produce a vaccine card. Whether I'm vaccinated or not, to me, is nobody's business, and uh, right. I sh- I shouldn't have to produce a vaccine card to uh, to stand up and uh, speak before the court. I argued that I have a First Amendment right to speak before the court, uh, just like everybody else. I have an equal protection right to do it as well, vaccine mm-hmm. card or no vaccine card. Uh, very interesting First Amendment issues. But 
I think the more interesting issue even uh, is maybe not the more interesting, but of equal of importance to the vaccine community is that I do believe that I've raised the issue of this statute, 21 U.S.C. Section 360 Triple B, in a way that the court will have to decide because it really comes down to a question of, I told you that the uh, only the United States supposedly could bring these suits. Well, I'm not suing on the statute itself, but what I'm saying is that the court had to, uh, when it made the order, issued the order that uh, required people to be vaccinated or to take a PCR test, which both of which were emergency use, it had to follow the law. And uh, by compelling people to um, by compelling people to be vaccinated, the court didn't follow the law. And I'm not challenging my rights under the statute. What I'm challenging is the court's authority to issue that order. And that should, in effect, I hope, cause um, the reviewing courts and hopefully one day maybe the Supreme Court to look at this issue from the perspective of, you know, did the court have authority to uh, issue an order that compelled someone to take an emergency use product. Uh, and so in, in, the, in the ultimately, the court will have to decide whether or not the law provides that an emergency use product cannot be compelled, even though that's not the, the focus. The focus is more on the judicial power, but it's, 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 a, it's a part of the judicial power question. So maybe confusing what I'm saying, but uh, no, it makes a lot of sense. No, but you, you can't be compelled to do something by the government when the government has a law that says they can't make you do it. <laughs> let, me put, let me make it that simple. Does that make sense? Right. It, 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 a judge, a judge has to rec- a judge. Only the court can, can regulate the court. Congress can't regulate the court. The, let the, uh, the, the, the administration can't, can't sue the court for not regulating the court properly. Only the court can regulate the court. And in this case, the court, but the court has to comply with the existing law. In this case, the court did not comply with the existing law because there is a statute that says you can't force people to have an EUA vaccine. So the court yeah. abused its power essentially by by doing this. And in so in so doing, the, the, in my my case, I'm asking that it be determined whether or not this statute um, was violated by the court saying people have to take this emergency use vaccine. It's a little complicated and, and technical, but I think there's a real chance to uh, get some really serious and important uh, law on the books concerning these vaccine mandates and what the power is of uh, government to impose it on people. It makes sense to me. Um, but I still say, I think we talked about this earlier, that Congress you know, can overturn a Supreme Court uh, opinion uh, in the same way they can probably, you know, work with this or the state legislatures can too so we talk a lot about state power here uh, as well this has been fascinating ronald thank you so much for coming on the show i really appreciate it good luck with the case keep us posted and uh come in and you know call in anytime you want you got it greg thanks a lot for having me all right really appreciate it take care and good luck go get them thanks that's Ronald Berluti. Uh, this has been a great discussion. And I think it's fascinating, the, the different perspectives of someone who has legal training, uh, law school, um, and someone who doesn't, in other words, me, <laughs> you know, because we look at things very differently. And I think that is quite fascinating. So I'm going to take a little break here. Uh, mute Ron's line. He's welcome to listen in. And I'll just uh, do that. And uh, let me play a couple things. And let me see. If Where am I going to start here? Let's do this. And back in just a few minutes. Take a break. It's 8.07 uh, Central Time. Back in a bit. 
Here at Action Radio, we are looking for sponsors. We have 30 and 60 second spots available for your announcements. And we have three-minute live call-ins to talk about your products and services available. Action Radio is the next evolution beyond talk radio. Join us and let us help your business evolve. Think about being a sponsor of the future and not just a listener and help us help your business grow as you help us plunge headlong into breaking new ground here on Action Radio every day. Hello, this is Greg Penglis for our newest shooting range here in Milton, Florida. Stand your ground. My friend Jason Myers and crew are creating an incredible facility for our city. Stand Your Ground is located at 6632 Elva Street. The phone number is 850-789-1776. Their email is standyourground1776 at gmail.com. Here you'll find either in process or already going an indoor shooting range, axe throwing, archery, a rage room, self-defense classes, concealed carry weapons classes, security license training, paintball, a full-service gun store, and 24-7 online ordering. So come on down or contact them by phone, email, or website and learn how you can best stand your ground. This is Greg Penglis for Strike Force, your source for pure energy. Strike Force is a concentrated energy drink that turns a half liter of your favorite beverage into an energy drink. You make your energy drink yourself. Action Radio is an affiliate of Strikeforce, so our listeners get a 20% discount. All you do is add our code, W-Y-L, to the discount code window at checkout. W-Y-L comes from our website, Write Your Laws. So, you can get your energy drink, a 20% discount, and help Action Radio change the relationship of we the people to our government. Not bad. Strikeforce is at StrikeforceEnergy.com. That's StrikeforceEnergy.com. Start your engines. Joe Biden's Dark Winter. No freedom, no liberty, no guns, no representation, no oil, no coal, no nuclear power. No Space Force, no Constitution, no family gatherings, no vacations, just taxes, work, misery, masks, lockdowns, and ever more government. This is what will happen if you let Marxists steal the election. This has been a public service announcement of Action Radio, reminding you it's time to get off your butt and save your country. Action Radio, part of the ADHD Radio Network, the ultimate free speech zone. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed and have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. At Action Radio, we don't report the news. We are the news. Every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask, 
to the answers no one has thought to consider, to the actions no one has dared to take. That is Action Radio. Okay, so Ron's line is still live. I've got it muted right now, but uh, Ron, if you want to comment or, or anything, feel free. Uh, just send me a quick message on Facebook and uh, just say, hey, unmute my line. <laughs> and, and then you can join the conversation anytime. But if you just want to listen, make a bunch of noise in the background, I don't care. Uh, but the, that's, that's fine. So I got you a lot. You're welcome to stick around as long as you want, but I'll be sort of watching my Facebook thing. And so if you want to uh, uh, come back and join the conversation anytime, just uh, like I say, send me a quick message. I'll be watching for it. And uh, or what you can do is get on the live chat, uh, send me a message that way. It's like, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I want to do stuff. It's like, OK, fine. Um, that way, because um, we've had the folks, you know, have background noise and it, it, it's kind of crazy. He's uh, sounds good. Thanks. OK, good. Yep. Great. So just hang out there. We're open. Um, normally in the third hour, we have CJ and CJ's Wellness Watch. And we talk about nutrition and alternative medicine and a bunch of different things going on. She can't make it today. Um, so we have the rest of the show off. So we're, we're kind of free to do all kinds of different things. I've got, uh, we got Marco. Marco's uh, texting in from the Netherlands. So he's live as well. Uh, and anybody else wants to join us, 215-383-3832. Um, and so we've also got the live chat. And we have a Skype line too for our around the world visitors. Um, and the way you use that is it's Skype online. And you look on the broadcast page, the information is there. So you can uh, use Skype. And then I have to set up your account. So you basically you call in one day. Uh, I approve it. And then you can call us directly. We've had calls from Beijing. We had call uh, from uh, Singapore. Uh, we've had Israel. We've had New Zealand. We've had different folks call in. And uh, my very good friend, uh, Alan Dawson, who's a tour guide in Belize. And so he's called in a few times. And speaking of background noise, we get the, we get the, 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 the two cans, <laughs> different parrots squawking in the background. It's really kind of cool. And so I hope that we'll have trips to Belize at some point, as well as Action Radio um, Cruises. We've got uh, Shelby Frenette, our, our cruise and travel uh, reporter, who's also a cruise and travel expert and the world's greatest cruise director. Um, she'll be back for one report. She used to be on every week, but she'll be back for one report next. Uh, let me just double check. I think it's Wednesday. Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday uh, at 9 o'clock, 9 a.m. Central Time Wednesday. Yeah, so that's going on. Um, for Memorial Day, I will be broadcasting live, as I always do. And it's a tradition of the show to read the poetry of soldiers written in combat. And this will go back, I don't know, maybe I'll take ancient combat at this time. Uh, we do mostly do a lot of American uh, soldier uh, combat from the, the War for Independence, the Civil War, uh, Vietnam, Afghanistan, different places, Korea, different things like that, uh, World War II. World War One, and so those those take up a lot of it. But I might branch out a little bit uh, and just cover more international, uh, even though it's an American holiday and we are uh, honoring uh, the fallen that, that gave their lives for our country. Um, and so that's something I do. So I, I broadcast on the holidays. We broadcast July Fourth, and where we read the Declaration of Independence. Um, in fact, Ron, if you want to join us in our reading, uh, feel free. But uh, there's usually five or six of our reporters. Um, that join in and we just take a bit of the Constitu excuse me of the Declaration of Independence and read it, and then we talk about it. And so that's how we do July 4th around here. Um, Labor Day, similar thing. We go over the U.S. labor history, something that's almost never talked about, uh, from the Pinkertons to the strikes to the company towns to child labor to the horrendous working conditions, uh, and uh, we go through that. So uh, as a member of the, the Teamsters, yeah, okay, so conservative patriot America first. Yeah, I was a Teamster because uh, I believe in the free association. And I don't see why, uh, if management bargains collectively, that, uh, you know, employees or prospective employees can't bargain collectively, too. It only makes sense to me. All right. So, again, we're wide open. 
and I've got a ton of articles here, so I'm just going to keep talking until someone else joins me. We've got several things that we've been doing over the course of this week. This is our, uh, you know, racing towards the end of the world week. And so we've covered uh, many things as we go, but I got some left. I've got the 14th amendment and the debt. Um, we've got uh, illegal alien supremacy. We've got a bunch of different things uh, that we can, uh, uh, that we can talk about here. It looks like Ron's left us. That's okay. Yep. Hey, uh, yeah. Hey, listen, Ron, thanks for being on. And so he's got the website. He's got the link to the show. And so we'll see what goes from there. But yeah. So again, just me and looks like it's just me and Marco right now. <laughs> he's out for coffee. He's at on the live chat. So we'll bring it back in here. Um, where do I want to go? Where do I want to go first? This is going to be an interesting question. All right, let's uh, let's talk about there's somebody I want to get on the show, Patrick Wood, and Patrick Wood has been on the show. He's the one who talks about technocracy, and so in our study of racing towards the end of the world, uh, one of the big things is global elite. So technocracy is the combination of technology and bureaucracy. In other words, these are people from the 1930s who felt that, uh, that they were the best, the brightest, and the smartest, and if they just ran the world and everybody listened to them, then things would be fine. Well, of course, anytime anybody wants to you know, rule the world, they always screw up, and they always do uh, horrendous stuff, and it gets uh, really bad in the long term. So he, he's got an article here, who, the global elite, who are they? He's got three parts. So I'll get the first one today, and we'll probably do a couple of other parts as the week goes on. He says, and this is Patrick Wood, November 21st, 2005, uh, newswithviews.com. So this one's a little bit older article. Same problem. The, the global elites have just gotten more powerful, but they're, they're certainly the same people with the same, uh, same megalomaniac you know, delusions of, of grandeur and self-importance. He says, there are two common misconceptions held by those who are critical of globalism. The first error is that there is a very small group of people who secretly run the world with all-powerful and unrestrained dictatorial powers. The second error is that there is a large amorphous and secret organization that runs the world. In both cases, the use of the word they becomes the culprit for all our troubles, whoever they might be. If taxes go up, it is they that did it. If the stock market goes down, they are to blame. Of course, nobody really knows who they are. So a few uh, figureheads, people or organizations are often made out to be scapegoats. Yeah, all of a sudden, like the Illuminati, the Bilderbergers, the Masons, all that kind of, you know, evil, evil people. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, he says, depending on a person's politics and, and philosophy, the scapegoats could be the U.S. president, the ACLU, the Ford Foundation, or Vladimir Putin. The point is that the real power structure is not correctly defined and thus escapes exposure. He says, these misconceptions are understandable because when things are wrong, we all have a driving need to know who to blame. In some cases, elitist sleight of hand initiates and then uh, initiates and then perpetuates false assumptions. He says this writer has become accused of charging that all large corporations are guilty of initiating and perpetuating globalism. There are many businesses, including banks, who are led by moral, ethical, and good-hearted businessmen uh, or businesswomen. Just because a company might touch globalism does not mean it is management or employees. Its management or employees are evil. He says, every bit of 35 years of research indicates that there is a relatively small yet diverse group of global players who have been planners, have been the planners and instigators behind globalism for many decades. The primary driving force, whoop, almost knocked my microphone over. Let's take that again. <laughs> Sorry, take two. The primary driving force that moves this click is greed. You guys remember Michael Douglas uh, when he was in the, the movie Wall Street? He played this character, Gordon Gecko, so that they named him after a lizard. 
I guess they couldn't call him Gordon Sneak. <laughs> so they got him Gordon Gekka, right? He says, greed is good. Greed clarifies. Greed focuses. Greed, you know, whatever it is. Anyway, it was a really fascinating speech. I kind of liked it. Um, you know, remember Shakespeare. It's not money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. So if you love money, if that's what you love, you know, your principles are out the window. I, I would say the root of power. I mean, the love of power is, is really the root of all evil. And money is just the currency. Like when um, Ron and I were talking about uh, the currency of, of votes versus the currency of uh, um, money, you know, that the lobbyists use. That was a big thing. Um, now that uh, Warren's there, I tell you what, Warren, this might be a good time for us to chat. I got two hours off. We got the rest of the show. Uh, I've got some other articles, but I'd rather talk to you. So let me just finish this article and give me a call in here, uh, and we can we can talk about uh, all the things that you want to talk about. This would be a good time to do it um, because I've got the rest of the show. So we'll take some time. We'll go back and forth. And uh, you know, I had a great debate with uh, with Paula Berluti, so let's let's keep going. Anyway, he says, let me see if I can get. Okay, almost. Let me get to back where I was in this article. I, when I knocked my, my microphone over, I actually moved the uh, the screen a little bit here. And he says, "Those are good people." Oh, here we go. Every bit of his, he says, every bit of thirty five years of research indicates that there is a relatively small yet diverse group of global players. I already read that part. It is also important to understand that globalists have full understanding of their goals, plans, and actions. They are not dimwitted, ignorant, misinformed, or naive. The global elite march in three essential columns: corporate political, and academic. For the sake of clarity, these names will be used herein to refer to these three groups. In general, the goals for globalism are created by corporate, academic, then provide studies and white papers that justify corporate's goals. Political sells academics' arguments to the public, and if necessary, changes laws to accommodate and facilitate corporate uh, in what it wants. So that's interesting. Let me go over that again. Uh, The goals for globalism are created by corporate, Academic then provides studies and white papers that justify corporate's goals. Political sells academics' arguments to the public and, if necessary, changes laws to accommodate and facilitate corporate in getting what it wants. So actually the global elites are, are, are more corporate than anything else, which actually makes sense. He says an important ancillary uh, player in globalism is the media, which we will call uh, press in this report. Press is necessary to filter corporate, academic, and political communications to the public. Press is not a fourth column, however, because its purpose is merely reflective. However, we will see that press is dominated by members of corporate, political, and academic who sit on the various boards of directors of major press organizations. Yeah, see, I wonder if that should be uh, uh, something we should regulate or do or take a look at. He says, this report will attempt to identify and label the core players in the globalism process. The intent is to show the make and pattern of the core, not to list every person in it. Nonetheless, many people will be named. Uh, okay, so he's just rambling here. This is, a, this is a long article. <laughs> I don't want to go through it all right now, but that's basically the idea. So if you think of globalism as corporate, academic, and uh, uh, political, pretty well sums it up uh, rather well. Let's just get a message to uh, – uh, oh, okay. So, uh, so I guess uh, Warren can't come on the show. It looks like he's busy. So he's writing. Oh, that's okay. That's fine. Uh, he says, I have my grandson here. Uh, he has six months. And so, hey, listen, grandson's more important. You know, talk to your grandson. No problem with that at all. We'll get you on another day. Uh, let me see if I want to read any more of this or whether I want to uh, – well, I may do a little bit more. Um, he says, organizational memberships. He says, the old saying, birds of, birds of a feather flock together, is appropriate for the perpetrators of globalism. Sociologically speaking, they are like any other people 
uh, a group with like interests. They naturally tend to form societies and will help them achieve their common interests. A side benefit of fellow is mutual support and encouragement. Once formed, such groups tend to be self-perpetuating. Um, let's take a look at one of these groups. Uh, here's where it gets interesting. Okay, I was wondering, I said, this is kind of dull. <laughs> well, hopefully it gets more fun. Um, he says, once formed, such groups tend to be self-perpetuating. He says, in modern history, the pinnacle of global drivers has been the Trilateral Commission. So all you folks you know, that are called conspiracy theorists and all those other folks, let's, let's, let's actually take a look at what these organizations are. Uh, this is something that uh, Josie's big on. And we'll talk about quite frequently um, are these different organizations, the Masons, you know, that kind of stuff. So let's take a look. He says the Trilateral Commission, founded in 1973 by David Rockefeller of uh, the great Rockefeller family and Zbigniew Brzezinski, whose uh, daughter, uh, I think, is the one on CNN. Anyway, he says this group is credited with being the founder of the new international economic order uh, that has been given rise to the globalization we see today. I think uh, George Bush, the elder, was one of the first to talk about the New World Order. But anyway, he says, that's the Trilateral Commission. There's another one. That's all in foreign relations. Prior to the founding of the Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations, the CFR, was the most significant body of global-minded elitists in the United States. As far back as 1959, the CFR was explicit about a need for world government. Yeah, that's where they're wrong. The U.S. must strive to build a new international order, including states labeling themselves as socialists. Yeah, like we're trying to do here, uh, to maintain and gradually increase the authority of the United Nations. So this is interesting that these folks believe in something that is completely uh, unconstitutional. See, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. The Constitution uh, is what the states use to control the federal government. The people, you know, uh, use their states, you know, to control the federal government. And so the federal government has a very specific jurisdiction. This is where I disagree with some of what Ron said earlier. That, uh, you know, that, that rights are, are, are flexible, malleable, and when they come into contact or conflict, it takes judges uh, and lawyers to resolve the conflict. I disagree with that. Uh, and that rights are absolute, uh, but your actions that you take are separate from the right. See, the right is the firewall. The right is the firewall between governments so they do not exercise prior restraint and stop you from doing something before you've even done it. <laughs> so so that's, where the, that's where the rights come in. So it's very different. Uh, different, different way of looking at it. Now, the Constitution being the supreme law of the land means that nothing else can be the supreme law of the land, right? So the, the WHO, their, their treaty, uh, uh, the United Nations, any of these international bodies, none of them uh, matter at all to the Constitution because the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. So there is no foreign entity. In fact, they're, they're moot. They're meaningless. They don't exist. As far as the Constitution is concerned, you know, the global organizations, you know, the CFR, the World Economic Forum more recently, the United Nations, you know, the WHO, you know, the World Health Organization, none of those exist. Only the Constitution exists for we, the people of the United States of America. Nothing else matters. That's the supreme law. And so it does allow for treaties to be made, but that has a, that has a, a due process feature uh, through the Senate and the president and things like that. And, of course, treaties can be changed and all kinds of other things can happen. It's really interesting. But the idea that any international body can have any authority over us is absurd. Everybody's all panicking. Oh, the who's got a treaty? They're going to take over. No, they can't. Only if we let them. It's like Roe v. Wade. I was going to get into that with, with Ronald. Roe v. Wade was an illegal decision because the Supreme Court has no power to make rules, laws, policies, regulations, or anything. All they can do is decide within the case. It's in Article 3. I've read it. And yet they try and do all this other kind of stuff, but they got away with it for 50 years because people let them. Roe v. Wade was never a legal decision. All right, so let's go back to uh, here. So it says, uh, this is, uh, they said in 1959, the U.S. must strive to build a new international order, including states labeling themselves as socialists. When they say states, they really mean countries. Right? 
and said the site for the United Nations headquarters in New York Center in New York was originally donated by the Rockefeller family. See, isn't that amazing? Or Rockefeller Center? Uh, I think I played their uh, tube of Christmas. That's a different story. But uh, the U.N., uh, was donated by the Rockefellers, which makes sense. So the New World Order, the United Nations. See, the, the United Nations should not be in the United States. Uh, it should be in Geneva or Brussels, you know, Geneva, Switzerland, or Brussels, Belgium. Uh, it should not be in here. We should not be funding it. We should not have anything to do with it, uh, except maybe an advisory or to go make speeches or things like that. But uh, as far as the UN goes, since they do not have any authority over the United States, they do not have any authority over the Constitution. As far as the Constitution is concerned, the United Nations does not exist. So why are we funding it? Why are we finding something that to, to our own laws doesn't exist? I found that interesting. All right. He says the first problem with the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, is that it became too large and too diverse to act as, quote, cutting edge in global policy creation. The second problem is that its membership was limited to North America. What group could affect global changes without a global membership? Uh, the CFR continues to be significant in the sense that politicians often look to its membership when searching for people to fill various appointments in government. It also continues to be a policy mill uh, through its official organ, Foreign Policy. Yeah, there's a magazine called Foreign Policy. I met a reporter from Foreign Policy when I went to the, the 2018 CPAC. Yeah, interesting organization. Oops, sorry. Uh, hit the microphone again. My, my microphone must be too close. Maybe I got the volume down too, too much, but I seem to be uh, knocking it a couple times today. He says, well, there are several uh, core global elites in the ranks of the CFR. They represent a very small percentage of the total membership. Conversely, there are many CFR members who are only lightly involved with globalism. Well, that's kind of interesting. Let's talk about another one. The Trilateral Commission. This is another uh, bugaboo. Does it get to the Illuminati and some of these other folks? Uh, no, I guess that's it. We'll probably get those in a, in a different one. So let's just do the Trilateral Commission. Then I'll take a break. And then we'll talk about other stuff. The Trilateral Commission, for all you global fans. David Rockefeller recognized the shortcomings of the Council on Foreign Relations when he founded the Trilateral Commission in 1973 with Zbigniew Brzezinski. Rockefeller represented corporate, and Brzezinski represented academic. See, I would have thought Brzezinski would have represented political, being a, a national security advisor to the, the Carter administration, but I guess I was wrong. All right. Anyway, he says, together they chose approximately 300 members, that'd be like the Committee of 300, right, from North America, Europe, and Japan, uh, whom they viewed as being the, quote, birds of a feather. These members were at the pinnacle of their profession, whether corporate, academic, political, or press. So am I at the pinnacle of my profession? One can only, well, not yet, but I will be. He says, uh, says, uh, it is a testimony to the influence of Rockefeller and Brzezinski that they could get this this many people to say yes when they were tapped for membership. Out of the uh, 54 original U.S. members of the Trilateral Commission, Jimmy Carter was fronted to win the presidential election in 1976. Once inaugurated, Carter brought in no less than 18 fellow members of the commission into top-level cabinet and government agencies. Now, isn't this interesting? Okay, so here's a parallel, just based on what we're talking about. So we've got Carter was brought in by the Trilateral Commission. Brandon was illegally put in office by the deep state. Both were responsible for a huge destruction of our country. Brandon is destroying everything. But, of course, he's under the, uh, the orders of Obama, you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, George Soros, and you know, Susan Rice, and whoever knows who else. So Brandon is not a real president. He was not elected. He, you know, they, they stole the election for him because they needed someone to, to represent um, the president without actually being one so they could do what they wanted uh, lawlessly. Now, in the same way, Jimmy Carter really screwed up this country, too. You know, he could have stopped inflation. He could have uh, get the economy going. He could have drilled for oil, and we wouldn't have the oil embargo. So he could have done a bunch of things, but he didn't do any of them. But he did just the opposite 
In other words, sacrificing the U.S. to the, the, uh, the greater global community. And that's what Brand is doing, sacrificing the U.S. to the greater global community, which is unfortunately being run by communist China right now with American money. So that's where we stand. Uh, so, All right. Then he says, perhaps no one has described the trilateral operation as succinctly, succinctly as veteran reporter Jeremiah Novak, uh, a Christian Science Monitor, February 7th, 1977. But we are going back. <laughs> That's when I graduated high school. <laughs> he says, today, a new crop of economists working in an organization known as the Trilateral Commission is on the verge of creating a new international economic system, one designed by men as brilliant as Keynes and White. Well, John Maynard Keynes was an idiot. <laughs> His idea that uh, stimulation comes from government, that's the cause of inflation, not economic growth. Economic growth comes from wealth, which comes from you know, people and labor and raw materials providing goods and services that people want and more people doing it. That's what provides wealth. Keynes just simply uh, created money out of nothing and uh, increased the money supply, which increased the inflation, making each dollar worth less. I wouldn't consider him a great example here. He says, the names are not well known, but these modern thinkers are as important to our age as Keynes and White were to theirs. Moreover, these economists, like their World War II counterparts, are working closely with high government officials, uh, in the case uh, President Jimmy Carter and Vice President Mondale. Let me see if I can find you one more interesting tidbit before I take a break here. Uh, oh, here we go. So what is now being discussed at the highest levels of government is both the United States and abroad is the creation of a new world economic system, a system that will affect jobs in America and elsewhere, the prices consumers pay, and the freedom of individuals, corporations, and nations to enter into a truly planetary economic system. Indeed, many observers see the advent of the Carter administration and what is now being called the trilateral cabinet is the harbinger of this new era. See, it started way back then. We're talking 76 to 80 was when Carter was president. So if you're wondering why we have problems now with the World Economic Forum and globalism and all the different things that are going on, understand that it started back you know, in the Carter days. And that is the problem. This is the pernicious influence of the commission and its dominance in the U.S. executive branch remains unchallenged to this day. Uh, I want to play something interesting. So it's now 833. 8.33. This will make it easier to do my notes at the end of the show. I'm actually recording three times now. It seems to make more sense. All right, so what do I want to play for you? I've got um, a bunch of my uh, Santa Rosa Volunteers pieces, and so hopefully they'll, uh, they'll come back to the show here. That's what I'm hoping. And I've got interviews, like all kinds of things here. But let's, let's go back to uh, some of the – I'll take – this will give me a little bit of a break, and I can pull up some other fascinating act for you. Uh, we haven't done Church and State in a while, and I've got – let me see if I have one of my uh, – oh, I don't – I should put more back on here. Yeah, I got Declaration of Independence. We got the Citizen Act and Church and State. I need to put some of my anti-federalist papers back on the show. Let's play Church and State. This will get us going for a little bit here. So most people don't understand the separation of church and state uh, as um, Jefferson uh, wrote it. So again, this is a case where rights are absolute. And uh, again, this is where I disagree with uh, with Ronald Berluti in the idea that he says that rights can be in conflict and it's up to courts and judges to find the balance between them uh, and make a solution. And I'm saying all rights are absolute. Otherwise, they become um, government privileges. And if the government can regulate it, it's a privilege. It's not a right. And the right is a firewall between, between you and your actions and, and the government, um, which doesn't mean that you can do anything you want because you have the right, but what you exercise and what you do is completely different. So in other words, you have the right to keep and bear arms. That is absolute. You have an absolute right to keep and bear arms. But that doesn't mean that you can use firearms any way you want. You can't. They're legal and illegal uses of firearms. Legal, self-defense, illegal, carjacking. It's pretty simple. 
And so the same way speech is the same way. You have an absolute right to free speech. However, let's take the case of yelling fire in a crowded theater. If you yell fire in a crowded theater and there isn't a fire, you are liable for all the injury and mayhem and destruction and, you know, that is caused because you yelled that. However, if you yell fire in a crowded theater and there is a fire, you know, you, 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 that's a good thing. <laughs> You're supposed to do that. So we shall see. Oh, Marco says 1977, great year. Well, is that year you were born, youngster? <laughs> having too much fun. Anyway, so that's our rights are absolute. And I, and, uh, I think, uh, you know, in many ways, I'm glad I didn't go to law school because I don't have the idea that, uh, that, that courts make law because they don't. Legislatures make laws. That uh, court decisions are as important or more important than the laws themselves. Or that ridiculous belief, Mark Meckler. The, the big convention of states guy. He comes on and, and uh, this is my show years ago, right? Back at WBY. He says, the Constitution isn't the Constitution. No, it's all the case law from the Supreme Court. And I have to get him back because I would say, no, it's not the case law from the Supreme Court because case law is subordinate to the Constitution because the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. So statutes are, are below the Constitution. Court cases are below the Constitution. The actions of any branch of government or any person in it are below the Constitution because the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Anybody have a question on that? Let me write down a new time here, 8.36. <laughs> That's what happens when I get chatting. All right, let me play something for you, and I'll be back in a little bit. This is Greg Penglis for Action Radio with Founding Moments, insights into our founding documents, sponsored by Santa Rosa Volunteers here in Santa Rosa County, Florida. Santa Rosa Volunteers is available at their website, srv1776.com that's srv1776.com there is no separation of church and state in the constitution therefore the supreme court can't imagine that it really is there or should be there so they can't create the rule out of thin air and then enforce it as if it actually did exist the biggest problem with the controversy between Thomas Jefferson, then president, and the Danbury, Connecticut Baptists, a religious minority, is that everyone focuses on the answer by Thomas Jefferson, saying there is a wall of separation between church and state. But they never consider the request made by the Danbury Baptists that Jefferson sought to answer, and therefore where the wall of separation actually is. If you only have the answer, then you can make the question anything you want including making the question fit the answer to advance an agenda or denying that there even is a question. The question now is whether the government is free from any of the moral constraints or persuasiveness of religion such that religion and government are walled off in isolation from each other so that government can contemplate and implement any power for themselves without any organized religious participation debate, opinion, objection, or protest. That is a complete bastardization of the exchange between Jefferson and the Baptists, and it has been used to advance a bogus set of laws and court opinions. The background for this controversy comes from the article mentioned below, which says, The First Amendment was meant as a limit on the National Congress only. Madison wanted limits on the states too, but they were rejected. State limitations on religious liberty and establishment persisted after the First Amendment was adopted. Religious tests for office remained in place in most states. In Connecticut, 1818, and Massachusetts, in 1833, 
did not disestablish their official state churches until decades later. The Supreme Court reinforced the idea that the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states, but rather only to the national government in Barron v. Baltimore in 1833. Back to me. Where this becomes especially critical is when the states, not the state as in government in general, but the individual states establish their own religion and churches because they were not subject yet to the First Amendment. It is in that context that Jefferson is responding to the Danbury Baptists. The key part of the Danbury Baptist letter to Jefferson is this clause. What religious privileges we enjoy as a minor part of the state, we enjoy as favors granted and not as inalienable rights. And these favors we receive at the expense of such degrading acknowledgments as are inconsistent with the rights of free men. The Danbury Baptists, being a religious minority in a larger group of Congregationalists, which was the state religion of Connecticut, were being discriminated against for not being part of the state religion. And because the First Amendment only referred to Congress making no law regarding the establishment of a government religion, but left the states free to do so, we had religious freedom at the federal level, but privilege and discrimination at the state level. That is why the Danbury Baptists wrote Jefferson. Now Jefferson respo Jefferson's response makes sense. He says to the Baptists, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Put in modern English, the individual relationship between man and God is direct, and the wall of separation is so that the government never crosses that wall between individuals, their churches, and God with state religions, state churches, religious laws and tests, religious qualifications for office, etc., etc. However, there is nothing in law or the Constitution preventing churches, religions, and religious individuals like pastors, priests, ministers, etc., and just regular folks too, from exercising moral persuasion, evaluation, and criticism over government because the free exercise of religion also includes the redress of government for grievances. The wall of separation of which Jefferson spoke only works one way. To understand Jefferson and the Baptists, it's not the wall of separation between church and state, it's the wall of separation between the free exercise of religion and any state-established religion. That's it. Everything else is agenda-driven narrative. The source for the Federalist Papers is federalistpapers.org. The Anti-Federalist Papers are from selfeducatedamerican.com. The Articles of Confederation are from usconstitution.net. This episode also used Thomas Jefferson's misunderstood letter to the Danbury Baptist from the Washington, Jefferson, and Madison Institute website. 
This is Greg Penglis for Action Radio with Founding Moments, sponsored by Santa Rosa Volunteers. Their website is srv1776.com. That's srv1776.com. Please share this report to anyone who needs it. Radio, dedicated to fixing everything. Okay, we're back. That's uh, That was a fun piece I made. I'm going to make more of them. In fact, tomorrow um, I'll probably do another of my WEBY classic interviews because I don't like to talk for three hours. <laughs> we're kind of at a, a, it's an interesting time where there's sort of a shortage um, of reporters. A lot of times I've had, uh, you know, I think a year ago, I had no free time. <laughs> I had reporters for almost every hour of the show, and it was it was hard to get guests in. Now we've got the opposite problem. I've got plenty of hours for guests and uh, and not enough regular reporters. So people come and go. Things change. Um, we've got someone coming back that hasn't been on for a while, uh, and that's Jason Myers of Stand Your Ground. And so I advertise them every day, and um, they are just – they're wonderful folks. In fact, I, I just got my uh, – uh, ordered my, my new limbs for my archery bow. So I'm going to do archery. Uh, they got a paintball thing coming up. Uh, we've got axe throwing. I even did a, a flamethrower there. <laughs> that was pretty exciting. Uh, and of course, the shooting range. And so it's a very, uh, it's going to be a very, I'll be, a, I'll be a regular, you know, over there, uh, you know, probably after the show, you know, go shoot and do work, work on the next show, that kind of thing. So that's going to be kind of cool. All right, let's get to uh, some uh, articles that are going to scare the hell out of you uh, because they're friends of mine and they know what they're talking about. And I'll be right back. Let's, uh, let's, let's get you in news mode. You know, I should use that for an action radio special or something like that. Uh, it's pretty good language. I, I like it. So it's good stuff. Anyway, um, there's a bunch of uh, sub stacks that I uh, uh, subscribe to, and it's, I think, some of the best information out there because it's uncensored. You know, you can write what you want. They don't, uh, they don't come along and say, oh, that's false information or fake information or, or it goes against our community standards or uh, uh, that's been fact-checked and found to be not correct. You just publish it. So when I wrote my article uh, last night, uh, the cure for, co- for, for COVID was always freedom. Um, I could say what I wanted, and I did, and it's true. I, I don't think anybody else has written an article or anything like this. But go to uh, gregpengliss.substack.com, and you'll see my article there. Apparently, it's catching on pretty well, <laughs> so that's a good thing. So the cure for COVID was freedom, and freedom from the First Amendment, freedom of information, freedom to know what's going on, freedom to, uh, to be free of illegal searches and seizures, and all the stuff that um, – that, um, that uh, Ronald talked about in terms more of court uh, protection rather than just outright civil rights protection. So I've got something from Dr. Judy Mikovits, one of my, my best friends from uh, the show here, and she wrote a column May 23rd, which was, what, two days ago? Yeah, two days ago. She says, it's not vaccination, it's extermination. Judy's great. <laughs> this is part of the, uh, the New World Order globalism is to get uh, everybody with some kind of chemical in the body that either will kill them prematurely um, I think that's it. I think that's the reason. Get you a chemical that will kill you prematurely because I guess the, uh, the, the seed oils, the, uh, the, the, the genetically modified foods, the, uh, uh, the fat, the chemicals, the sugar is not working fast enough. So now they want to just, you know, or the, or the quote vaccines that are now in the food, I guess it's not working fast, fast enough. 
Um, so that now they're making these deadly jabs. She says vaccine, vaccination is not immunization, it's extermination. She says, as I always say, folks, it's not, <laughs> this is rocket science, even though she knows rocket science, right? Okay. She says, as in my book, Plague, for example, we've been advising pregnant women infected with HIV to put their children immediately on antiretroviral drugs prior to any immunization for fear that a vaccine might trigger full-blown AIDS. Yeah, that's, uh, it's amazing that these so-called vaccines um, do. They trigger cancer. They've been triggering AIDS. They've been triggering all kinds of things to people. Uh, my friend, Dr. Peter Pry. You know, he had a COVID vaccine. Uh, he had cancer, but it was going away. It was under control. It was in remission. He gets a COVID jab, and six months later, he's dead from cancer. No, I don't think that's a coincidence. Dr. Judy Mikovits says the HIV virus likes to hide out in the monocytes. She knows what those are. I don't. The B and T cells of the immune system, well, I guess that's what they are, <laughs> you know, exactly the cells a vaccination would stimulate. If this time bomb was already in a good percentage of the population, we don't want to be setting off an explosion of neuroimmune disease and cancer with a vaccination. She said, uh, this is, uh, he says, emphasized in our forward by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the, the brutal repression of any such science, great scientists like An- Antonetta Gatti. So anyway, so that's it. So it's actually be really interesting. Um, Robert Francis Kennedy wrote a forward to Judy Mikovits book. And so they know each other, obviously. <laughs> I'm hoping that he'll come on the show, and I'm hoping she will take our vaccine product liability bill to him. We shall find out. So Dr. Mikevitz, who I call Judy, says, stop taking all shots. Stop in capital letters. Stop taking all shots. All right. She says that, uh, let me just rearrange a couple things here. She says, every single shot is a synthetic virus, a cancer. Let me say that again. Talking about uh, these jabs, COVID jabs, all the jabs. Every single shot is a synthetic virus, a cancer. You're injecting the DNA, the RNA, the blueprint of another animal. Every single injection is a synthetic lipid nanoparticle. In other words, a very tiny thing wrapped in fat. <laughs> so synthetic lipid nanoparticles are made from monkey cell lines. Monkey cell lines, great. Isn't that what they say AIDS came from, right? That's what the messenger RNA vaccines are, only this new one is totally synthetic. Yeah, it's made on a computer, right? So when the, the, the guy in, uh, from Moderna in the TED Talk in 2017 said, we've hacked the software of life, what they do is they turn uh, the amino acids you know, into uh, binary codes, and they recombine the binary codes with a computer program. So they actually make messenger RNA using a computer binary code. was completely synthetic. So just because they can make the combination doesn't mean that combination would ever occur naturally in nature, and it doesn't. Judy says, we don't call them vaccines because they're not immunization. They are actually poison, waking up dormant diseases, attacking your body's immune system with other foreign unknown viruses. In other words, monkey, mouse, or other God-forbidden substances. So we are injecting poison that go directly into your bloodstream, bypassing the liver and digestive system. In other words, when you take medicine, you know, by pill, trapping the poison in the body, giving it enough time to wake up the other diseases to suddenly and permanently injure and even kill vast numbers of people. Judy knows what she's talking about. She's one of the, the foremost molecular biologists in the world today. You know, it's not like she comes on this information by accident. Also biochemist. Anyway, she says, scientism, the worshiping of science in place of God is a cult where scientists declare themselves the high priests of science. Given the opportunity, they will take over the evolution of humans with their vision of new transhumanist human 2.0. Advances in DNA-based biology have been significant from studying single-cell organisms to understanding the human brain. The discovery of DNA's structure 
brought both admiration and concerns with fears of negative consequences similar to atomic weapons. Inserting genetic material into human germ cells is still restricted due to concerns of altering human evolution. Yeah, rightly so, huh? All right, let's go reach back here for a second. I'm gonna put my, I need to put my microphone up a little higher. So uh, I'm just going to add another book to my collection here. <laughs> I get three books. Oh, that's better. This seems easier. Okay, anyway. Um, oh, that even sounds better, too. Okay, good. So uh, this, this was a good addition to my, my stack of books here. Uh, she says, be careful, folks, and don't be fooled by transhumanism and its false promise to enhance human capabilities uh, through the application of advanced technologies. We are the real-life guinea pigs uh, used for scientific advancements, such as genetic, genetic engineering, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, and cybernetics, all under the guise of enhancing human, phys- human physical and cognitive abilities, in other words, physical and mental, uh, extending human lifespan, and overcoming human limitations. Anyway, she says, uh, uh, on the origin of species uh, by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. People don't realize that that's the full title of uh, Charles Darwin's book, all right? The the title people know is on the origin of species by means of natural selection. Um, But then the other part of the title, she says, or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Darwin was a racist, a real racist, not a made-up one like they accused everybody of today. He says, published in 1859, 100 years before I was born, wow, published in 1859, Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species revolutionized our understanding of evolution and natural selection. It proposed that species evolve through gradual changes and share a common ancestry, uh, challenging prevailing beliefs and laying the foundation for evolutionary biology. This subtitle, The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life, is an important note and has been highly misunderstood. In Charles Darwin's book, Charles Darwin's book. The phrase preservation of favored races in the struggle for life refers to the preservation of advantageous traits through natural selection. It emphasizes how various uh, variations within species are favored and passed on based on their survival and reproductive success. It is important to note that the term races refers to species variations, not human races as understood today. Well, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Um, interesting stuff. I, I might cut the show short today just because I don't want to just read all day. <laughs> You know, I've got articles in other places, um, so I may do that just because, just because, just because. So I got that one. I got uh, another one here on meat. Do 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 do. Call teachers Heritage Foundation. Oh, lab grown meat. We should probably talk about that one too. Let me take. Uh, what was it now? Eight fifty four. Eight fifty four. We're taking another break now. Still a lot of breaks. That's because I'm tired of talking. Yeah. <laughs> You know, nobody's typing in, nobody's calling. So I know you're listening. I know people will listen to the podcast, but uh, that first hour was so good, it'd be hard to top that. So I'll play a couple more things, and then we'll, uh, I'll be back. Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. Few try. Even fewer go on to get a license. I believe a major reason for that is how we teach people how to fly. My book is designed to help you navigate the flight training system, but it's so much more than that. It really describes an entirely new way to teach flying. So if you've never tried a lesson or got discouraged in your training and quit for any reason, this book can help you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. 
The complete guide to flight instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Pankless Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. Well, that sounds good. Even better. Okay, how about your car? If you want the best service for your vehicle, please talk to James at Florida Stores Automotive, conveniently located at 6715 Caroline Street in the historic district of Milton, Florida, right between the Milton Bakery and the Blackwater Trail. Whether you need an oil change or an entire engine replaced, this is the place. The phone number is 850-623-6651. That's 850-623-6651. Call, ask questions, and get the information you need. Florida Stores Automotive is a full-service automotive shop for both domestic and imports, modern and classic. It is a family-owned business here in our Milton community. Open weekdays from 7.30 to 5 p.m., Florida Stars Automotive is a convenient place to keep your car maintained and on the road. Ask them about Firestone Tires and the rotation and maintenance plan. Florida Stars Automotive. I go there. You should, too. Do you know your way around healthcare, insurance, pharmacies, surgery, alternative treatments and choices? I don't, which is why I'm so glad I met Priscilla Romans, had her on Action Radio, and learned about health patient advocacy. She is the founder of Great Care, and now as an affiliate of Great Care, we are proud to offer through our discount code, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws, a 10% discount. Great Care saves you both time and money. They provide medical advocacy, consultation, advice, and recommendations nationwide. Their website is greatcare.com. That's G-R-A-I-T-H-Care.com. You can email them at greatcare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Greatcare, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. This is Greg Penglis. So what is Action Radio? It is a radio show with its own citizen legislature. That's you, the listener. It is a fully interactive system of listeners, expert guests, social media, writing bills, legislator input, bill submission, lobbying, and citizen action. Action Radio is the future of talk radio using all the available technology in one completely integrated new system. You are listening to Action Radio Online with Greg Penglis. The webpage for all Action Radio shows and podcasts is blogtalkradio.com slash citizen action. Please share our show with all your friends and family, both nationally and internationally. The guiding principle of Action Radio is this. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed. Radio. 
dangerously cool. So I think I'm good for about one more article. Then I'm going to play one of my uh, WBY classic interviews from way back when. And so I'm glad to get these on podcast because otherwise they'd never be heard again because uh, that station really no longer exists. Um, but um, that's, uh, you know, what can I say? I mean, it's, it's, it's fun to play them because, like I say, I don't like to talk for three hours. You know, and again, when we get a lot more callers, uh, and most people listen by podcast, that's, what, that's why we don't have a lot of callers. Um, but we get more callers, we get, uh, you know, more people, uh, more guests. I'm certainly, I used to work on guests a lot harder. I guess I'm doing more of the information now. I'm working with the legislation. But we've got guests coming up. Again, we've got Jason Myers tomorrow. We've got uh, next week, we have two guests, so it's actually going to be better. Uh, we've got Shelby Frenette, uh, 9 a.m. on Wednesday. We're going to talk cruise and travel. Uh, and we've got Jessica Rivera, uh, who's a, a media superstar. Uh, she'll be on 8 o'clock uh, next Friday. And so we got a couple of guests already lined up. And so and we had a guest today. We had uh, Ronald Berluti, who was a fabulous lawyer. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation, like I say, even if I completely disagree with him on certain things. But that's okay. Uh, I think really, I believe that this, that is a, a huge difference between those who have had uh, a law school education and have practiced law and those of us like me who haven't, um, but still write legislation. So it's, it's uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll, I'm sure that, that those, some of the debates we have will continue on. All right. So I got this from uh, Dr. Mercola. Uh, lab grown meat is 20 times worse, 25 times worse for the environment. Lab grown meat. All right. I mean, this is, this stuff is scary. All right. Yeah, and this is the article was written recently, May 24th. So yesterday, <laughs> pretty recent. He says, uh, and it is by Mercola, it should be, you know, yeah, by Joseph, by Joseph Mercola. A lot of times his articles are only up for a certain amount of time. They disappear. They're chasing him down. But uh, this is uh, pretty interesting stuff. He says, lab-grown or cultured meat is being promoted as the wave of the future, the green, sustainable way to eat. No animal suffering, no greenhouse gas emissions, just meat-like protein that will taste like the burgers and steaks you're used to. Too bad it's all a lie. He says, beneath the greenwashed facade, the promises of lab-grown meat fall flat. Lab-grown meats are not about your health or the environments. They're a tool to phase out farmers and ranchers and replace them with an ultra-processed product controlled by patents. You know a patent? In other words, they have a license to produce something? All vaccines are patents, uh, and they're all patented, and they're patented by government officials like Dr. Fascist. And they make money licensing those patents to Big Pharma, which manufactures them. And then they get royalties back. And it's just this very incestuous thing between the universities. We've got the grants, the, uh, the, the big uh, health, uh, you know, the, the public health Nazis, as I call them, you know, Dr. Fascist and the public health Nazis uh, and uh, Big Pharma. So big university, big pharma, big government. They all kind of work together on this. Patents. In other words, if they can license it and make money off it, they'll produce it. Uh, if it's already uh, an older thing like hydroxychloroquine, it's pretty much out in the market, you know, there's no real money in it, then uh, they say that you can't use that to, to cure COVID, even though it does. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, that's how it works. Anyway, he says, importantly, even if cultured meats aren't toxic per se, they're ultra-processed products and therefore likely to cause health problems similar to those caused by other ultra-processed foods, such as, let me know these well, right? Obesity, cardiovascular disease, that's heart disease, type 2 diabetes, I wonder what type 1 diabetes is. Anyway, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, ugh, mental health problems, and increased all-cause mortality. In other words, everybody dies younger. Great. You can even be a product that I don't want that's grown, that's not really meat, that's completely unnatural, that's highly processed, that's going to kill me early, and they're probably going to insist we buy this kind of stuff. I don't think so. He says, on top of that, they're more harmful for the environment than conventional ranching. Since synthetic biology relies on genetically engineered monoculture, 
Well, there's a big series of words. It creates the very things they claim to counteract, namely environmental degradation uh, that promotes climate change. Well, first of all, climate change is a myth. So anything connected to climate change is a lie. We know it's a lie. We know that carbon dioxide is the building block of life. We need to release it from the, uh, from the petroleum products uh, and the oceans. By it, Carbon dioxide is released from the oceans when the weather warms up. It's released from uh, petroleum when we burn it, you know, to make our cars go. Right? So that's why you need both. You need, uh, you need warmer temperatures so that the carbon dioxide – is why the carbon dioxide goes up when the, when the temperature increases. It's not the other way around. It's not that carbon dioxide increases the temperature. No. It's that the, the amount of carbon dioxide goes up when the temperature increases because it gets released from the oceans. Hello? <laughs> you know, it's pretty simple stuff. Anyway, he says synthetic biology. This is back to Dr. Uh, Joseph Mercola. Check on... Uh, 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 oh, I, got, I do have a comment from Marco. Let me see what he says here. It was beneath my scrolling. <clears throat> he says, a shorter show. How will I ever make it to the end of the workday? <laughs> I'm still here, Marco. Uh, keep commenting. I'll keep, uh, I'll keep talking. He says, how about those meat replacements? If you don't want to eat meat, don't eat anything that was put full of chemicals to make it taste a little bit Taste a little like meat. Yeah, exactly. Now, that we're talking about processed uh, we're process, artificial proteins, what we're talking about here. And so anything that's not really meat. And this really has a, a big in, you know, uh, impact on, on the Dutch farms. And so this is, you know, they're, they're saying uh, they want to, what they really want to do is get rid of farms, farms and ranches, and have all food controlled by the government. That's why they want everything under electricity, because electricity is metered by the government. That's why they want uh, your home and your, uh, and your car and everything you do controlled by government, because these, these people think they can run everything. So we're, we're in for a massive revolution. Uh, the only question is how. And, of course, the way I want to do it is to change the laws. So they can't do the things that they want to do. Screw them. You know, we're, I'm not here to serve a, a master. It's just that simple. Anyway, uh, Mercola says, as explained by Lewis, the starting ingredients in fermented synthetic biology products are cheap sugars. What, what's the, what's the, the, the most dangerous chemical out there that uh, contributes most of the disease? Sugar. So they're making meat from sugar. Keep that in mind next time someone says that uh, they're, they're, they're meat-like substance. You know, it's actually good for you. It's not. He says the starting ingredients are fermented. And he says uh, cheap sugars. Cheap sugars derived from genetically engineered corn and soy. Well, you know, soy is, is bad for men because it has plant estrogen. Corn is bad because it's GMO. Actually, they're both GMO, genetically modified organisms. So you've got genetically engineered corn and soy creating cheap genetically engineered sugars, all of which are incredibly dangerous for you, right? He says all GE crops are grown in environmentally destructive monocultures with taxpayer subsidies. Oh, see, we're even paying for our own death, right? And use, well, they did with with the, the vax too. And use loads of herbicides such as glyphosate, which we know is deadly, pesticides like neo- uh, neonicotinoids, nicotine, neonicotinoids, and synthetic fertilizers. Okay, so uh, there's a problem. All right, so you, you've got it's like uh, uh, ethanol. Ethanol should not exist and shouldn't be in our gasoline. Why? They're taking corn, basically, you know, salad oil, <laughs> and trying to run your car on it. Well, cars run best on gasoline. We don't need corn oil in our gasoline. And yet they do it because Archie Daniels Midland is so huge they can buy a subsidy. So they spend several million dollars on political campaigns, and they get several billion dollars in return on their investment. So any company that, that uh, spends money in Congress is actually investing. That's commerce. It's not free speech, by the way. And commerce can be regulated. Got a bill on that already. He says, as a result, uh, these, these plant, meat, substance, sugar, substitute things, they're loaded with chemical residues. 
In addition to, base of, to a base of sugars, hundreds of other ingredients may be added to the ferment in order to produce the desired end products, such as a certain protein, color, flavor, or scent. As explained by Lewis, see, the one thing we need is labeling. If stuff is labeled artificial meat or, or plant or, or substitute, you know, then we, can, then we can not buy it. The biggest problem is they don't label it. They say, well, it's the same thing as meat, so we can label it as meat. No, you can't. Hopefully, it'll look different, <laughs> but we'll see. They'll get better at it, and that's going to be when it's worse. Anyway, any, uh, it's like, um, have you noticed that all the milk products, they say uh, uh, this milk was not made with RBST, the, the growth hormone, and then they say the FDA has said that it doesn't make a difference. Well, it does make a difference. That's why, we, that's why all the milk on the shelves is non-RBST growth hormone, because people don't buy milk that has the growth hormone in it. Why? Because they're smart. Okay? In fact, most people are buying organic now just for that reason. So they all have to say they don't have it in it, and they all have to be that, hopefully, because we're not going to buy the stuff that has the crap in it. Anyway, he says, as explained by Lewis, the most often used microorganism in the fermentation process is E. coli. Well, that's poop. <laughs> e. coli is, is, comes, is a bacteria that comes from your colon. It's poop. <laughs> the E. coli is gene edited to produce the desired compound through its digestive processes. So basically, they're making meat out of sugar and poop. And that sounds good to you, then we've got a problem <laughs> because I'm not going to eat sugar and poop, you know, packaged up to look like meat. Uh, but that's basically what it is. So you got sugar, poop, pesticides, residues, uh, corn, soy, and a bunch of other stuff that's not meat. Uh, if I want a hamburger, I want real beef. Okay. What are the basic meats? You know, beef, chicken, pork, <laughs> you know, uh, the lamb. Did I forget anything? Actually, I think I'll join uh, Ted Nugent and go hunt deer. <laughs> this is probably the safest thing to do. Anyway, he says the microorganism must also be antibiotic resistant since it needs to survive the antibiotics used to kill off the other undesirable organisms in the vat. As a result, antibiotic resistant organisms also become integrated into the final product and the types of foodborne illnesses that might be caused by gene edited antibiotic resistant E. coli poop bacteria, my words, and its metabolites are anyone's guess. Nobody knows what such illnesses might look like. Well, let me see. What comes from poop bacteria? You know, cholera, typhoid, polio, you know, the waterborne diseases from, from poop bacteria. Yeah, this, you know, so if you see sudden increase, it, it, people start uh, eating this, uh, this um, you know, chemically produced thing. And all of a sudden we, we see new cases of polio, typhoid, and cholera. Oh, gee, I wonder where that came from. Gee, maybe because you made it out of poop bacteria. What do you think, huh? Then he says cultured meat products tuck. Cultured meat produces toxic bio waste. He says, aside from the desired target metabolite, whatever that is, these gene edited organisms may also be spitting out any number of non target metabolites and with unknown environmental consequences and health effects. In other words, they don't know what the F they're doing. <laughs> Let's put it bluntly these people have no idea what they're doing. It's like the old line from uh, Jurassic Park when uh, Jeff Goldblum you know, says to Richard Attenborough, he says, you never asked if you should. You only asked if you could. You mean, you idiots. You made raptors. What kind of idiot makes, makes velociraptors? Anyway, he says, explained by Lewis. I forgot who Lewis was, but you can read the article later. The various feed ingredients are placed in a fermentation bioreactor. Well, that's interesting. Set at 87 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit for anywhere from 24 to hundreds of hours to grow the target microorganism. The target organisms in the ferment consume the nutrients they need, and what's left over are those organisms are, uh, oh, uh, what's left over after those organisms are extracted is hazardous bio waste. This sounds in a way, uh, it's sort of like the wine process of fermentation, except wine's really good for you, and this stuff sounds deadly. <laughs> 
He says, while traditional fermentation processes, such as making beer, <laughs> I just talked about that, right? It says, traditional fermentation processes, such as making beer, produce waste products that are edible by animals, compostable, and pose no biohazard. Yeah, because what are the components of beer? Uh, water, barley, hops, and malt. That's beer. Well, of course, in American beer, there's a bunch of other stuff in there. But in European beer, it's generally water, barley, hops, and malt. And it's, as I know in some countries, that's all you're allowed to put in. That's it. Anything outside of that, and you're illegal. So that produces um, food, animal food. And when they're done with it, the, the, you know, the leftovers. Of course, you know, some places they, they take the Bach beer. In other words, the leftover residue, make beer out of that. That's the really good stuff. And anyway, uh, he says the synthetic bio- biology ferments must first be deactivated and then must be securely disposed of. Yeah, like that's going to happen. It cannot go into a landfill. Making food that produces hazardous bio waste is hardly a sustainable model. Exactly. So they're making the very thing that they say they're not going to be making while making it. Mm-hmm. He says lab-grown meat is 25 times worse for the climate than beef. Well, obviously, we need more beef then. Duh. Take all the, uh, the ethanol fields growing corn and uh, have them grazing beef. Grass-fed beef would actually be a good thing. We need more grass-fed beef. He says lab-grown meats are also an environmental disaster in the making. Their impact is far more akin to that of the pharmaceutical industry than the food industry. Yeah, this sounds like vaccines. It also sounds like electric cars, which are terrible for the environment. They cost a whole bunch of money. And basically take organic fuels, you know, oil, coal, natural gas, uh, take the organic fuels of gasoline and diesel um, or organic fuels, put them into a power plant to, le- to create electricity, which is then converted to a power. So why is it better for the environment to take petroleum, create electricity, and put that into a car to create power than just have the petroleum go straight into the car to create power? Why do you have, to, why do you have the electricity uh, extra step? Every time you change a form of power, you lose efficiency. So it's actually, electric cars are actually worse for the environment because they take the power that was there at 100% from the gasoline uh, and reduce it, whatever it costs, to create the electricity and then transmit it through the leaky power lines to your car to your, your ever-decreasing uh, battery power. That doesn't make any sense. <sighs> Lab-grown meats are also an environmental disaster in the making. Their impact is far more akin to that of the pharmaceutical industry. I read that. Indeed, precision fermentation, precision fermentation, well, that's interesting, that is the process of engineering a gene sequence for a specific protein into a bacterium of yeast strain and then growing it in fermenters to produce the required protein has been used for decades in the production of drugs and vaccines. So that's why they got the technology. So basically, they took the same technology for for, uh, uh, these dangerous drugs and vaccines, and they're going to make dangerous meat protein out of them or dangerous protein out of them. Hmm, got it. He says, according to a recent cradle-to-grave life cycle analysis, the lab-grown meat industry produces anywhere from 4 to 25 times more CO2 than traditional animal husbandry. It's like the old joke. You know, they're, they're, someone was an animal husbandry major until they caught them at it. <laughs> anyway, the article says, as noted by the authors, investors have poured billions of dollars into animal cell-based meat. Uh, and that's the ACBM sector, based on the theory that cultured meat is more environmentally friendly than, friendly than beef. Not true. But according to these researchers, that hype is based on flawed analysis of carbon emissions. Well, of course. See, so, so they don't care whether it's good for the environment or not. They just want people to eat uh, you know, manufactured food rather than real food so they can close down the farms and ranches or sell them to the Chinese Communist Party. This is the primary source of CO2 emissions are the purification processes which require 
They say fossilized, they say organic fuels. The bacteria used to produce the, quote, meat releases endotoxins. That doesn't sound good. And these must be eliminated from the growth medium, <laughs> the culture, or else the cells won't reproduce properly, as noted by the authors. Animal cell culture is traditionally... Slow down, Greg. Animal cell culture is traditionally done with growth medium components, which have been refined to remove, reduce endotoxin. The use of these refinement methods contributes significantly to the economic and environmental costs associated with pharmaceutical products since they are both energy and resource intensive. Based on this assessment, each kilo of cultured meat produces anywhere from 542 pounds, uh, 246 kilos, to 3,325 pounds, 1,508 kilos, of carbon dioxide emissions making the climate impact of cultured meat four to 25 times greater than that of conventional beef. Well, see, I don't care about the carbon dioxide because we need more of it anyway. So that's not my war. That's not my problem. My problem uh, is the fact that they're creating artificial meat. And this is a much longer article, but let's stop it there. Uh, you get the idea. It's on my Facebook page. Or you look, just look up Mercola, Take Control of Your Health. And the article is, Lab-Grown Meat is 25 Times Worse for the Environment. All right. I'm going to play my Megan Barth interview. So a while back, I threatened to play this interview by Megan Barth. Uh, was in, I think, my third day on radio. It was really early. I played this once before months ago. But the reason I'm playing this is because of the ITIN number. And next week, I'm going to play some uh, of the economic ones from WBY. Uh, because we have some great economic guests on. I played Walter Williams last week, last Friday. But this one is particularly interesting because the ITIN number is used in so many cases for fraudulent illegal aliens to remain here. And with this big push now, there's some uh, bogus you know, pathway to citizenship bill in the House where they want to take people who've been here for five years and they say not committed a crime. Well, if they've been here five years illegally, they've, they've committed a crime every day for five years. So if your logic is they can't come in here because they committed crimes, you just destroyed your own argument because being here is a crime. Well, not other crimes. I don't care about other crimes. The crime of being here is a crime. So the idea that you can excuse that crime that was committed in a serial fashion every day for, for multiple years uh, is ludicrous. You can't do that. That is the crime. The crime is being here. I don't care what else they've done. It doesn't matter. Just being here five years illegally is a crime. So, you know, that's like saying if you can keep the money you robbed from the bank for five years and not get caught, you can keep it. And that's what they're saying. It's like bank robbery. Oh, it's legal. It's five years. Okay, it's all yours. It's your money now. Sorry. Don't worry about it. So I want to play this interview because it'll take us up to 10 o'clock. And uh, let me see how much time it is here. Megan, 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 Megan. And she's also brilliant. 42 minutes. We've got about 42 minutes left. This is going to work out exactly uh, fine. So, again, this is an interview that I did on uh, March 5th of 2017. So this would have been my fifth day uh, on radio because I started on March 1st in 2017. So I've got five days of radio experience when I did this interview, but she's brilliant and she makes it easy to understand. Let me just knock back the volume one right about there. That's good. Okay. So any reference to WEBY to a phone number other than 215-383-3832 or any website other than blogtalkradio.com slash citizen action is of a previous radio station that does not exist, but it's such a great interview. I want you to play it so you can understand just how bad the illegal alien problem really is. And let me just double check all as well here. Yep, looks good. All right. Um, I'll be back at the end of it to sort of say goodbye. But uh, other than that, here we go. Ooh, yeah. Time for the Action Radio Hour. This is Greg Pangos. It is 8.06 in the morning, and I have a very special guest. And this is someone I've wanted to talk to for quite a while. So let's introduce our guest. 
She's the founder and proprietor of ReaganBabe.com and a nationally recognized political commentator. She has a weekly, she's a weekly co-host for WAR, the Wayne Allen Root Show of Las Vegas. And she has appeared on Headline News, CNN, Newsmax TV, One America Radio News Network, The Tipping Point with Liz Wheeler, America Trends with Dr. Gina, The Blaze Radio, Lars Larson, Bill Cunningham, and has regular weekly appearances on a variety of nationally syndicated radio shows. And her op-eds have been published in Canada Free Press, The Hill, and The Daily Caller. Megan Barth. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Megan. Thank you so much for coming on my show. How are you this morning? Did I get you up early? Uh, of course, yes, but it's okay. I'm usually up this hour because radio is always drive time on East Coast. Pretty early for me. I'm in Vegas, so no problem. Okay, good. We uh, I started off wanting you on the show because of the article you wrote recently on the in, uh, individual tax identification number, the massive tax loophole allowing illegal aliens to defraud American citizens of literally billions of dollars. But when we talked yesterday... You set the stage so well for how the left is destroying this country that I wanted to go a little bit into that and kind of set that up so that people will understand what's happening once we get to the article. So you talked about the Cloward-Piven plan, and so I looked at that up, and I found an article in WorldNet Daily by Jerome Corsi who said this about the plan. In the 1960s, Professor Andrew Cloward and Francis Fox Piven of Columbia University, Obama's alma mater, devised a plan to provoke chaos by deliberately overwhelming government systems and the U.S. economy to the point of collapse, paving the way for state intervention that would ultimately replace America's free enterprise republic with a collectivist system. That sound about right? That's exactly right. Yeah, Jerome's great. Yeah. Can you tell the folks kind of an outline of how we got here, what this means, and, and various issues, and then we'll get into your article. Sure. Well, are we surprised that two communists came from Colombia? No, we, we should not be surprised that they... Flowered uh, and Piven came from Colombia, but but uh, uh, you know nothing I guess bothers me more when I hear especially those on the right talking about Democrats incompetence or that they don't know what they're doing or Barack Obama is uh, ignorant or doesn't understand something. No, they completely understand what they're doing. Uh, they're not stupid. They're not un- incompetent. Uh, the Democrats don't like. Uh, the following. They do not like law and order, and that's why we see them fomenting chaos, either through uh, paying protesters, getting behind radical uh, leftist groups like Black Lives Matter, who infiltrated the police and how police train their force, um, or by uh, economics, right? So the, the whole goal of the left is to overthrow the free market capitalist system. And thereby, once you do that, you've created a whole dependency class that has outweighed uh, the production of the producers. So those in the wagon are far greater than those pulling the wagon. And when you get more people in the wagon, then you have to have bigger government. And so big government is one of the favorite things of the Democrats. As they grow government, the dependency grows, and that's exactly what they want. Uh, the free market is the enemy of the Democrats. We aren't dealing with the party of JFK any longer. We are dealing with a party that more identifies with Marx and, Cloward, and Karl Marx. Cloward Piven is, um, illustrates their economic chaos, uh, whereby their goal is to overthrow the free market system by creating more and more dependency on that system, uh, on the government system. 
Wow. And this is what I found so fascinating. In fact, I had a couple of stories today uh, that sort of relate to this whole chaos uh, theory that's going on. One uh, is how Bill Clinton paved the way for a nuclear North Korea, and then it related that to how Obama paved, is paving the way for a nuclear Iran. So do you see a connection there? Do you see that this is all part of the, the chaos plan to weaken us and strengthen our enemies? Well, well sure. That, that's definitely part of it. I mean, when you look at the Democrats even far back as Ted Kennedy, uh, they were always aligning themselves with the communists or with the enemies of freedom. You see now this collusion between um, Islam and the left, and they have much in common as far as totalitarianism. Hmm. Uh, so when you look at how the Democrats have aligned themselves from a foreign policy standpoint or an economic standpoint, it goes against the individual freedom as well as the tenets of our country as how we were founded. Uh, Barack Obama demonstrated this on the on the global stage uh, in his apology tour. When he took off right after 2008 and started touring the world as our commander-in-chief, he was apologizing uh, for our imperialism. You see this in his economic policies, whereby he chastises America for being an institutionally racist country. Yes, yeah, like and we're so, doing everything wrong, and people get tired of hearing that they're doing everything wrong, or that they don't like people who look like, who don't look like them. And every time you criticize Obama, you know you're, you're labeled a racist, and it's just, we just people just got tired of that because there was nothing true to it at all. But that was the line they were giving over and over and over. Yes, but um, Barack Obama and the Democrats succeeded, yeah. didn't they? They succeeded in uh, having a 1.3 percent GDP, the lowest on historical record for any seated president. Yep. Uh, they succeeded in uh, creating a division in this country for a man who won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, just a few weeks into his first term. Barack Obama has created more division as far as race and gender, uh, religion, etc., in this country. Um, he has uh, he overthrew, uh, and you know he was commander in chief. So, so with that carries a great responsibility on our standing in the world and how we deal with enemies abroad. Well, one of the very first things they did uh, is they uh, didn't meddle in the Iranian elections, yet they meddled in the Israeli elections. Oh, they had a fundraiser. They had a whole program. They were actually actively campaigning against Netanyahu, if I remember. Correct. And so what, when, and what I mean is they didn't meddle in the Iranian elections, well... Uh, Ahmadinejad was trying to be overthrown by a green Western movement, mm -hmm. a very pro-American Western movement, whereby a woman who was executed in broad daylight on the street by the Iranian police, her name was Nada, and we didn't do anything about it. Instead, we stood by and watched another tyrant take over his country through false elections. So we didn't meddle in that one, but we wanted to meddle in Israel. Uh, then we watched the overthrow of uh, Mubarak in Egypt, and we watched the with, without any congressional approval. One of the, Israel's uh, strongest allies, as well as ours. Then we watched the overthrow of Muammar um, Gaddafi, and the now granted Gaddafi wasn't a saint, but he was impotent. He wasn't doing anything. He didn't have any weapons. He was basically stoned on opium, sleeping in a tent with prostitutes. I mean, the guy was impotent. But yet, by the overthrow of Egypt and Libya, this created a huge jihadi recruiting horn in northern Africa. 
And so you look at the foreign policy and you have to scratch your head and, and say, what is he doing? Well, he's doing exactly what the Democrats do, and that's sowing the seeds of chaos by limiting or at least um, reducing the amount of power and the footprint that the United States has in the world. And this comes from Barack Obama's apology tour, by where we need to shrink from the national stage. And once we shrink from the national stage, thereby you see terror grow, because someone's going to fill that vacuum. Yeah, if it's not the... liberty and freedom, yeah. then it's going to be, you know, Iran, or it's going to be Russia, or it's going to be North Korea, or, it's, you know, it's going to be our enemies. Power from without and power from within corrupting. So... If we bring that to the illegal alien problem, you know, our foreign policy is, is a disaster, and that's going to change, um, and our domestic policy by letting in illegal aliens. And I was also reporting earlier on the sanctuary restaurant movement, how not only is sanctuary cities going on, but in San Francisco they're actually teaching restaurants how to keep their illegal aliens and, and doing these you know, legal rights conferences and things like that. But let's get on to your article. Uh, it talks about the, uh, the individual tax identification number, and illegal aliens are being funded in a way that I wasn't even aware of at all. So let's start with what that number is and how it came about, and then we'll get into more details. Sure. Um, oftentimes you will see left pundits like Jorge Ramos uh, and the others on the left say that illegal aliens contribute. They pay taxes. Uh, and so that they say they contribute more to the economy than they take out. Well, that's a complete lie. It is a complete lie. And we found this lie. Um, I, have an, uh, I have an investigative reporter by the name of Katie Grimes who, who contributes to ReaganBabe.com, but I also have a fraud investigator with over 40 years' experience, whobabe.com. And what uh, my fraud investigator had found after they had received no increase in their Social Security um, cost of living increase, zero increase, none of our seniors got a cost of living increase, uh, she went on a little mission to find out where all the money was going. Well, she stumbled upon a program called ITIN. And ITIN is an individual tax identification number specifically given to undocumented workers, otherwise known as illegal aliens. That's what I call them. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm blatant about it. I don't make any bones about language here. Well, correct. They're illegals, they're aliens, and that's still in the law, so we can use it. Um, and I will continue to use it. Uh, so illegal aliens are given an ITIN number because they do not have a Social Security number. This ITIN number was created by the IRS and the Clinton administration in 1996 in order to capture lost federal tax revenue. So every illegal uh, undocumented worker or illegal alien is given an ITIN number so they can work and pay taxes. Well, that now, makes no sense to me. Hang on, hang on a second, Megan. This is crazy mm -hmm. because the, the the federal government is specifically giving a number to illegal aliens because they can't give them a social security number. I'm sure they would if they could. And we didn't, we haven't even talked about social security fraud. And so this was done on purpose to collect the money from people they know shouldn't be here in the country illegally um, or in the country illegally. This to me is harboring fugitives. But this was a willful plan. So so why why did they do this? In order to capture. Uh, an untapped source of new federal tax re revenue. Even though they're criminals? Correct. This staggers me. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, but you have to understand what the left has done 
with illegal activity and lawlessness is they've normalized it and mainstreamed it. They've done it through this tax program. They've done it through calling them dreamers. They've called it, you know, PACA. Uh, and so what they're trying to do is normalize and mainstream illegal activity, and part of this is illegal immigration and illegal aliens. Right. So, so according to the National Immigration Law Center, the most recent information, which is August 2012, we have 21 million ITINs assigned to taxpayers and their dependents by the IRS. Well, wait a minute. So if we have 21 million uh, ITINs, or individual tax identification numbers, and we know that these are given to illegal aliens, so mm -hmm. this 11 million figure is totally bogus then. We've been, we've been saying 11 million for 30 years. Yeah, which is crazy because you right. know, it might have been 30 years ago, but there's no way that's right. now. And this is just the numbers. This is just from the people that have identification numbers. What about the illegal aliens that don't have identification numbers? Is any any forecast on that from your sources? No, you know that that's kind of hard because those are the folks that are living in the shadows, or those that have uh, stolen social security numbers and committed identity theft. Like half of. Um, the uh, assemblyman, I think it's Avila in California, or oh, Leon, yeah. I think it was Leon. Leon had came, came out and said, well, half of his family get their Social Security numbers from going to MacArthur Park, which means that half of his family have stolen Social Security numbers. And, of course, half his family's been arrested and deported, right? Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, hold on for a second. We've got to take a break. Uh, I want to come back and talk about uh, some of these staggering statistics, the 21 million um, and, and the, the iTunes assigned to illegal dependents in Mexico and Canada and how they don't have to even identify who they are and this, this whole mess in your article that you've done so well. This is Greg Penglis with my special guest, Megan Barth. It's 8.20 in the morning, 13.30 WEBY, and we'll be right back. We have the great and all-powerful Mike Bates, uh, general manager of the station here at WEBY, in the production booth. So he's uh, picking the bumper music for today. Uh, I'm on with Megan Barth, and uh, it's 1330 WEBY, Northwest Florida's talk radio, 1330WEBY.com. And, you, Megan, you were talking about Jorge Ramos, um, how he says that uh, illegal aliens contribute. And I don't care. I don't care what they contribute. They shouldn't be here. So I've got my little analogy I want to run by you, and I put this in an article on Canada Free Press uh, a while back, uh, of two bank robbers. Uh, they each rob a bank on the same day, and they get a million dollars. One bank robber spends recklessly and is caught and put in jail for 20 years. The other bank robber gets away with it, spends wisely, frugally, starts a business, starts a family, has kids in school, is a member of the community, does all these wonderful things for charity, and is looked upon as a pillar of society. And 20 years later, you know, the family, the kids are grown, he's doing well and things like that, but he's finally discovered as the bank robber. So the other bank robber who was caught immediately in his 20 years, he gets out. So the question is, who's the better person, the bank robber that got caught or the bank robber that became rich and, uh, and you know, did very well for himself and had the family and the whole bit. And, and I use this as the analogy to an illegal alien that comes here, starts a family, contributes, gets all kinds of tax money, does what they want, but they're still illegal aliens. So if you substitute bank robber for illegal alien, you, know, you can pretty much see what's going on. But do you see any virtue in someone coming here, abusing our system, and even though they've had this wonderful family and done all these great things, you know, does that make them virtuous enough to not have to pay for their crime of being an illegal alien? Well, yeah, and this is we've we've defied federal law for 
along as, as far as um, and even in past administrations where we have not upheld uh, federal immigration laws. And if we had upheld federal immigration laws, we wouldn't have such a problem um, with, uh, you know, illegal aliens residing uh, and working and bilking the system off of billions of dollars. This ITIN program is a very good example of that. So we know we have 21 million ITINs as of 2012, but here's where it gets uh, disgusting, quite frankly. Um, over when, when you have an ITIN number, number, you can claim under that ITIN number up to 20 dependents. Now, according to the IRS, dependents do not have to be blood-related. Uh, they can be uncles, or excuse me, they can be cousins, aunts, uncles, friends, uh, nieces, nephews, whomever you claim as your dependent. But according to the IRS, there's a special exemption for dependents who are claimed in who reside in Mexico or Canada. Those dependents who are claimed under ITIN numbers do not have to prove they exist. There is no identification required. They do not have to be a U.S. citizen. They don't have to have an ITIN number. They don't have to have a Social Security number. They don't have to reside in the U.S. Yeah, that was my they question. Do, do these people even have to be in the United States to get the benefits? No, they do not have to prove they exist. Unbelievable. So, so you're talking 20? 20. 20 dependents per ITIN number. Has there been any? So what, I'm sorry, go ahead. What we have found is over nine years and up to 2010, so this is nearly a decade ago, wow. the IRS paid over $14.2 billion tax dollars in refunds to illegal aliens who claimed these dependents through refunds. So once they claim a dependent, they can take advantage of our tax system through all of the child care tax credits, uh, the exemptions, um, the earned income tax credit, the additional tra- uh, child, uh, tax, child tax credit. So you can get up to $1,000 for each qualifying dependent. So in essence, if you have an ITIN number, you can get refunds for your dependents of up to $20,000. So that's 20000 per 20 dependents. So that, that's a lot of money. <laughs> it's $20,000 per ITIN holder. They can get in refunds for 20 dependents, 1000 per dependent. Okay, I see. Now, if you, if you have an ITIN number, Barack Obama, through the 2009 stimulus, made it much easier for you to get refunds. How? Because uh, you only have to make, according to Barack Obama, $3,000 a year to claim 20 dependents, whereby before he made a change uh, it was $12,500 per year. So by reducing the amount of income an ITIN holder needs to uh, have in order to claim 20 dependents, he slashed it by about 80%, so only $3,000 a year. So an ITIN holder only needs, needs to make $3,000 a year in order to get $20,000 in refunds. That's insane. You know, what kind of, you know, we've got $20 trillion in debt. You know, is this part of what uh, what racked up our debt? And also, um, did this you know this had to have been planned? And I'm thinking, where were the Republicans when this was going on? I mean, the stimulus package, these so-called jobs shovel ready, the whole thing, which wasn't so shovel ready after all. Um, they you know the, didn't anybody object to this at the time, or what happened? 
I'm sorry. <laughs> you want to take a break? I got another question for you too. Um, so you can sorry, grab I swallowed my coffee wrong. Oh, I'm sorry. So, do you, I, I got a bunch more questions for you. In fact, I have more questions for you than I think anybody else I've ever had um, concerning the. Chi- I got confused reading over your article between the child tax credit, the additional child tax credit, the earned income tax credit, which I know is full of fraud. Um, and the fact that it's retroactive up to three years. So not only do we have right. child tax credits, we've got all these additional child care credits, uh, tax credits on top of that. Can you kind of tie those all together? Sure. So as, you know, each of us, to make it a little bit simpler, mm-hmm. as we're tax-paying citizens, we, ha- we, t- we pay taxes through our Social Security number. Okay. Now, we can claim some dependents, but the requirements for us are so much more onerous, meaning that, they're legal. Okay. So what we have to make sure is is that we have social security numbers for our dependents, that our dependents live in the United States, that we have to make so much money in order to take advantage of the tax code through the additional child care tax credit, um, as well as the other tax credits that can come from having dependents. But ITIN holders are not set or do not follow the same rules as legal citizens. Mm. They have special exemptions carved out from them from previous administrations and through the tax code. And that's specific to dependents from Mexico and Canada where they don't have to prove they exist. So Barack Obama set this program on steroids as part of the stimulus by reducing the amount that a legal alien needs to earn in order to take advantage of these refunds. So they're not really refunds. They're, they're like they're like tax welfare, aren't they? Because this is right. money that they never they never pay taxes on the money they earned in the first place. Right. I mean, if you only have to make three thousand dollars a year, but you can get twenty thousand dollars in tax credits back, I certainly would be only working for three thousand dollars a year to get twenty thousand back. Not I mean, a bad it's deal. Really not the illegal aliens' fault. They're only following the law, which has been carved out and granted to them by the Barack Obama administration and by the IRS. Huh. I get, so I get, here's how the fraud. Here's let me give you an no, example no, ahead, of yeah. how much fraud is 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 in this uh, system. So in Atlanta, Georgia alone, in one year, the IRS paid forty six million dollars in refunds to a single address that twenty four thousand illegal aliens reported to have lived there. So they used 24,000 illegal aliens that they lived at the same address in Atlanta, and the IRS sent $46 million in refunds to that one address. And if you think it's only in Atlanta, you're wrong, because in Detroit, there were 8,000 illegal aliens at one address. In Indiana, there were 6,000 illegal aliens at one address. I mean, these are some pretty big homes. Well, I'm wondering who's organizing this, because these people could not have gotten together on their own unless there's an illegal alien network or government, you know, doing this as well. Um, I got one quick question, then I want to get to Marshall, uh, who's waiting on hold right now. But my question mm-hmm. is, and I don't know if you looked into this or not, but what percentage of ITN holders have ever been audited by the IRS? I don't have that information. Uh, that would be curious, wouldn't it? Well, have, have uh, they ever been audited, or they have an exemption? Right. Well, how how are you going to audit somebody when you don't even have to prove that their dependents exist? That, I mean, how, what, what, 
That's my point. You know, as we get audited, and we have to have documentation. We have to have, you know, if you have, uh, and I'm divorced, so I had, you know, when it came to uh, who got the child uh, tax credit, you know, it was who had the, the most, you know, support. We have to prove those things. But illegal aliens, by virtue of having a basically a fraudulent tax number, uh, the government has allowed them to commit fraud. You know, I, my thought is, I bet they're not auditing any of them. Right, and over, so over those nine years, like I said, and up to 2010, we paid $14.2 billion in refunds Scary. For, for, to people who have zero tax liability. I mean, maybe they made 3000 bucks a year. Uh, maybe they made $12,500 a year since Barack Obama changed it in 2009. But just imagine the amount of refunds that we have since paid from 2010 to 2017, specifically because of the reduction in the uh, earned income to $3,000, as well as the open border policies uh, by which Barack Obama and the Democrats, um, you know, basically advertised and implemented. Wow. Tell you what, we're going to take a break. We've got Marshall on hold. Marshall, I'm going to take you right after we come back and get to your question. Uh, This is Greg Penglis with my very special guest, Megan Barth of Reagan Babe. It's 1330 WEBY, Northwest Florida's talk radio. We'll be right back. Eight thirty eight in the morning. I'm with uh, Megan Barth, my special guest. This is Greg Penglis. It's thirteen thirty W E B Y and thirteen thirty W E B Y dot com. And let's get Marshall on with his comments and questions. Marshall, go ahead. Oh, good morning. Megan, first of all excuse me. First of all, Megan, I want to thank you very much for your opening statement about the people that think that the Obama administration and the Democrats are ignorant or making mistakes, that this is absolutely intentional. You're welcome. Thank you for understanding that. (laughs) It it literally makes me nauseous when people think that it's all an accident. But at any rate, uh, I actually have two questions. One is, is the Trump administration aware of your numbers on the income tax since the checks are going out right now? And number two, how do you approach the average Democrat that's dumb enough to think the Democratic Party today is the same Democratic Party of the 60s? Uh, good question. Um, well, I, I encourage all of my readers as well as my listeners to go to ReaganBabe.com, and that's R-E-A-G-A-N-B-A-B-E.com, and go ahead and print this article. It's uh, the very first article on my website. Uh, I have pinned it at the top so people can print it out and send it to your congressman, send it to this administration, and make them aware. I do know that Jeff Sessions perhaps is aware of this program because I believe he was the only one to come forward and try to close this tax loophole. If we just close this tax loophole for ITIN dependents, uh, this would really, um, I think, stop this fraud because any dependent should have to prove that they are, de- uh, number one, a true dependent, and number two, live in this country. Um, there should be no exemption from dependents from Canada or from Mexico. Uh, so I would demand that this IRS tax loophole be closed, and thereby we can save tens of billions of dollars. And my goodness, the, the wall, it'll pay for the wall itself, as well as some of our military. Um, so go ahead and, and download it and send it to your congressional representatives and make some noise. Um, number two, how do you approach a Democrat? You know, I would ask a Democrat if they believe that illegal aliens should have the right to vote. 
And if they say no, ask them why not. And, it, it, and if, it, if they say yes, ask them why. Because right now the Democrat Party is dependent on illegal aliens. They aren't dependent on the hardworking citizens of this country. If they were, they would be kinder to them. They wouldn't have rammed Obamacare down our throat, the largest tax increase on the middle class and the working class in the history of this country. Um, and so I would simply ask them and frame the argument as far as illegal immigrants, because these are the people that, that are protected to a greater degree than citizens of this country, and see what their answer is. Some people are just completely gone, quite frankly, Marshall. And so I never, you know, there's that old adage, never argue with an idiot, because sooner or later someone, you know, is not going to understand the difference. Um, but, but when it comes to illegal aliens, illegal immigration, you know, you can use this article uh, as an example. Um, because Barack Obama put this program on steroids, and Bill Clinton is the one that designed this program with the IRS to capture uh, lost revenue. And so the benefits that are being granted to illegals are far greater than the benefits being granted to citizens. Well, amen. I sure do appreciate it. I will try to download your article. And uh, thank you very much for all you do. I think the Democratic Party has become the Nazi Party. You just switch conservative for Jew. Well, and that's why they call us Nazis. You know, it's a that's classic projection. When you understand the radical left and Cloward Piven and Saul Alinsky, you know, those are their idols. Uh, it's certainly not a, a free marketeer as their idol. It's totalitarians are their idols and who they follow in order to implement a variety of rules that work against American citizens in this country. So I thank you, and you can just print it. Uh, and so download it and put it in an envelope and send it along. And hopefully, uh, you know, if enough people do this, um, I think we can always make some change. You know, we've brought change before by being loud through the Tea Party, et cetera, and um, we can, we still have that uh, spirit within us. We, we've ushered in uh, Donald Trump as our president, and we can keep going as far as having an impact on the laws on the books to have them changed. Yeah, thanks, Marshall, for your call. That was that was uh, some good questions, and it raises a couple things I want to talk about. Um, first of all, whenever you know comparing JFK, uh, if you go back and actually play his speeches, and you can get them on YouTube and, and other sources, you'll find out that he was a tax cutter. And I, I did some research into some of our great tax cutting presidents, you know, Calvin Coolidge, Ronald Reagan, JFK, and now you know Donald Trump. I'm sure is going to do the same thing, and it always works. It always improves the economy. It always puts more money in people's pockets, which if you believe in the multiplier and the velocity of money and all those economic theories, uh, is a good thing. But people don't realize that JFK was like a totally different person. Uh, he talked about... Well, so was Clinton. Yeah. yeah. You know, President Bill Clinton, I was no supporter of his. However, when you look back at some of the things he did because of the pressure put on him by the Republican Congress, mm -hmm. um, he, he cut and slashed the size of the federal government by eliminating 2,000 different um, agencies. And I think there were 250,000 federal jobs that were no longer protected. Uh, and and uh, Donald Trump promises to do the same thing. The difference is, is that the press was just happy to go along with the Clintons and his um, you know, Republican-led Congress and giving Clinton all the credit. Right. But when it comes to Donald Trump, even though he might do exactly the same thing that Bill Clinton did, he will be labeled a Nazi, a usurper, you know, anti-American, and, and the list goes on and on. So, yes. you know, the, the Democrats wouldn't win another election if it weren't for illegal uh, immigrants. 
And if it weren't for the press, the we, press is the Democrats' sounding board. It's their propaganda arm. Well, they're, they're, they're the same industry because I know the debate questions right. were, were funneled to the Hillary Clinton campaign. You know, money was being funneled from the Clinton Foundation. It's just basically all one big corporation in their attempt to create this socialist utopia here. But let's talk about the vote fraud thing for a bit because I know you've done some work with that and some great work mm-hmm. with Katie Grimes in California. California, mm-hmm. we study California so we don't become California. So that's that's, right. that's my philosophy here. But the, the right. vote fraud, in a couple of cases, Bernie Sanders, I think, was robbed of his primary. Now, I disagree with Bernie sure. on everything, but he's a man of integrity as far as his positions go. He's consistent. He's not lying about who he is. He says he's a socialist. I can understand that. I reject the philosophy, but I understand that. So I want to talk about Bernie Sanders and also the soak millions of votes for Hillary. So, so what happened to Bernie? Well, Ber- the, the primary was rigged. Uh, the primary was rigged by the DNC. This is all... Uh, true, even though you know you can find it, uh, the DNC rigged the primary in favor of Hillary. And my phone and and Katie Grimes' phone rang off the hook after the primary by disenfranchised voters saying that they went to the polls uh, as they have for 25 years and their name just disappeared and they couldn't vote. And this happened to independent voters. It happened to Republican voters. It didn't happen to Democrats. What a surprise. Uh, so, what a surprise. <laughs> yeah. And, and so when we look at California, we, we know that there's rampant fraud, especially when we have a Secretary of State um, who is supposedly giving instructions to poll workers and demanding that poll workers do not give provisional ballots to Sanders supporters, et cetera. And this is all that we found through uh, the voters that contacted us, as well as the Election Integrity Project, which runs out of California. Now, I, I fled California two years ago in order to come to what I thought was a red state called Nevada. Mm-hmm. Well, I soon learned that uh, it's red maybe in color, but not in philosophy, because the Republicans here vote much like Democrats and are controlled by the large unions, the Culinary Union and the SEIU. And so what I saw in this last election was massive voter registration fraud resulting in voter fraud. Uh, Nevada was very easy to rig. There's only 1 million people that voted in Nevada. 900,000 of those votes came out of one county, Clark County, Harry Reid's backyard. Again, what a surprise. (laughs) What a surprise. So I was fortunate enough to have a friend who ran in a very small assembly district here, Assembly District 15. And if you go to ReaganBabe.com, just search Stan Vaughn, and uh, you will see the article there I I published on Newsmax as well as ReaganBabe. He sent out... Uh, first-class envelopes with his campaign literature to uh, his district, specifically to actively actively registered Democrat voters. Mm -hmm. He sent out approximately 12,000 envelopes to actively registered Democrat voters. He got 10,300 envelopes returned to him. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Right. And and why this is so important is that... uh, Stan sent first-class envelopes where most candidates, if not 99.9% of the candidates, send bulk rate envelopes because okay. it's cheaper. Well, if you send bulk rate, then the post it gets returned to the post office, and then it basically gets recycled. But because he sent first-class, the post office was forced then to return those envelopes back to him oh. with a reason as to why they could not be delivered. And what that reason was? Dead, uh, deceased voters, no mail receptacle, 
no one listed at that address. Uh, address doesn't exist. Uh, the list went on and on. And these and were still so actively here, registered voters on the voter rolls then? Correct. Okay. Correct. And so wow. this is one small assembly district where only 15,000 votes were cast, or I think it was maybe 18. I think 18,000 votes were cast. He has 10,300 envelopes. <laughs> and Donald Trump only only lost this state by 25,000 total votes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can easily project that across the whole state, and the vote fraud is, is staggering. Here's, here's another question, though. I want to get back to California for a second, because I think Katie mm-hmm. mentioned in one of her articles that there are still boxes and crates and rooms filled with ballots that have never been counted from, that, uh, from a previous election. Correct. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And so what, the, what the California law and the Election Integrity Project, you know, they're just a small group of active citizens. They work on donations and work on volunteers. You know, they're only so large, but they have, you know, quite a bit of insight into what's happening. Every time they would make a complaint to the Secretary of State, well, then the legislature in California would just change the law to protect the lawless. And so according to the reports that the Election Integrity Project were giving to the Secretary of State, well, then that would filter down to the legislature, and then they would tighten up the laws to make the laws or to make the system less transparent to the Election Integrity Project. Wow. <laughs> i got one more question on this, and then we're going to take a break. Because mm-hmm. the Democrats and the media, Democrat-controlled media, were making a huge amount that Hillary won the so-called non-existent popular vote. And the reason for that was because of California. But if there's all this vote fraud going on, you know, how can they say that? I think she won by three, there's like million. three million um, yeah. illegal votes we're thinking about. Or how does that all work out? Yeah, yeah. She won the popular vote supposedly by three million votes. So, you know, Marshall, if you're still listening, you're going to hear Democrats, you know, um, pine about how it should be the popular vote that matters. Well, then why don't we just eliminate the Senate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. That's the answer to that. Let's just eliminate the Senate, and then you won't have Elizabeth Warren. You won't have, you know, Bernie Sanders. You won't have, uh, you know, Barbara Boxer and the like. Uh, so let's just eliminate the Senate and go by the popular vote. Really? Okay, fine. I mean, that's that's the logic of the left. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No. But the popular vote has never determined elections. Even Bill Clinton lost the popular vote. I think he only won by 43% of, of, the, of the populace. Right. And, so, and, and the Democrats will always claim there is no voter fraud. Prove it. Why don't you prove it? The only way that you can prove it is by having an investigation. And that is, until we have an investigation, we won't have any proof either way, will we? Yeah. And the, I know in California, when I left there, um, the voters, they don't ask you know, when you register your, you know, your car or anything like that. They don't ask you if you're a, a citizen. Or they don't have anything like that. They do here in Florida. The first thing they asked me was, you know, provide my birth certificate. And I, I had a passport because I was born in Canada. Uh, and this is why I'm so big on the immigration issue, because I am a legal immigrant. I went through the process. It's a good process. It's a worthwhile process. And it teaches you a lot about this country. So I got more questions for you when we come back. I want to see if there's anything else you want to comment on the article. And we'll take our last break now. This is Greg Penglis, 1330 WEBY. I'll be right back.
Greg Pangos here with my special guest, Megan Barth. This is the Action Radio Hour. It's 8.55, and we only have a couple of minutes. Uh, we have to break a couple of minutes before 9 o'clock. So, Megan, if you could give your contact information and where people can hear you uh, online or on radio, uh, I'd appreciate that. Sure. Uh, my website is reaganbabe.com, R-E-A-G-A-N-B-A-B-E.com. Um, they can find my media schedule there on the top right, as well as all of my past articles that I have uh, done with Katie Grimes uh, individually as well as my other contributors. Um, so my media schedule can be found on my website. Um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm on the show with Wayne Allen Root. Uh, we're about to go to national syndication in April, so I'm excited about that. We'll have a far greater reach than Nevada and Southern California. And my Twitter handle is Reagan underscore baby, and everyone has Facebook, and I have a Reagan baby fan page on Facebook, and it's Reagan baby. Wow. My Twitter is Reagan underscore baby. Cool. Um, this being Action Radio, and I hope to have my own um, website up fairly soon, we're going to start uh, having the audience help me write our own legislation. So the purpose of this is to be the Action Radio rather than the Talk Radio Network. For, you know, This is what I'm trying to design here so that our, our audience actually becomes a citizen legislature. And one of the things I want to run by you is my Proof of Citizenship Act. And this is my idea from an article that I wrote on how to deport millions of illegal aliens without hiring a single stormtrooper because the left is always talking about how they want to, um, you know, we're going to have to have all these raids and people are going door to door and they're bringing up the images of Nazis again in the streets, you know, which is what they want to do. So I was thinking, if you could make it impossible for illegal aliens to live here, if pretty much everything you did from bank account to registering kids for school, for getting any kind of benefit, for buying a car, for renting or, live, or buying property, where you had to have a proof of citizenship, would that make it impossible for illegal aliens to be here and would they leave? What do you think? Well, I think it's it's great in theory, but, you know, who's going to have the political will to put that in practice? I mean, we, we now have Republicans uh, who seem to uh, turn a blind eye uh, to illegal immigration uh, and uh, have also normalized uh, the invasion through our borders. Um, you know, without borders, we're not a sovereign country. We can't, we have to have borders. I mean, imagine if Hillary Clinton were president. We would have a 500% uh, spike in Syrian refugees, and we would have an open border system much like that of, of Germany and, and other members of the EU have, who have committed cultural genocide by allowing their borders to be breached by cultures who have zero interest in assimilation. Wow. And so, you know, we, assimilation is, break, then. Uh, assimilation. Meanwhile, back at present day, uh, one of the first things you notice about uh, being on radio uh, is that you don't, you're not used to checking the time. So I'm a lot better about it now. Uh, and so that I can watch that when we had uh, Ron Berluti on uh, earlier in the show. But uh, with Megan, it was my fifth day in radio. And so although things, most things went pretty well, um, there was just that, uh, that glitch of time that it took me a while to start thinking of time because I was so happy talking to these people that uh, I didn't really uh, watch the clock like I should have. Anyway, that changed as I got better at it. And then, of course, uh, when the station was uh, sold, um, I was out, and then a few months later, started here at Blog Talk. All right, that's it for today. It's been fun. It's been fascinating, and I'm glad I, I stuck around with the extra amount so we still get the full show in here. Uh, so I'll be back tomorrow at 7 a.m. 
We've got uh, Jason Myers of Stand Your Ground at First. Um, we've got uh, Derek's off. He's got some Memorial Day uh, activities going on all weekend. And I'm not sure if Candace, uh, cowgirl Candace, will be here yet. We're still waiting to hear from her. So who knows? But I'll see if if, uh, if nothing else happens, I'll get you another interview. So we'll get Jason at first, and I'll have another interview. Uh, one of my classic ones. And so we'll have that uh, ready just in case for tomorrow, uh, depending on who's here and who's not here. But, uh, you know, like I say, I'm always ready for, for whatever happens. So the main website, the one you're listening to, blog talk, excuse me, blogtalkradio.com slash citizen action. And then we have our, our latest website, writeyourlaws.com, W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S. We've got Substack, gregpenglis.substack.com. We've got uh, givesengo.com slash radio for contributions. And my email, greg at writeyourlaws.com. So let me play a little bit of music now to send us on our way for Thursday. And we'll be back tomorrow morning again, 7 a.m. Central Time. And let me see if I can find my piece. Here it is. So have a great day. And back tomorrow on TJIF Friday. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.